VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Tuesday, January the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a call in the queue and on the air. Topic is up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26, well, a bit of a messy morning. And I understand there was uh, upwards of 31,000 customers of Newfoundland Power lost their power last night at interruption of delivery of power from Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro. Some trick with the Maritime Link trip. But anyway, messy weather here in the metro region today, but very much back to what's normal on the Avalon Peninsula. Winter means slush, and there's plenty of slush out there today, so watch your bobber. Tonight there's going to be a send-off for the athletes set to compete in the Canada Winter Games 2023, beginning on the 18th of February on Prince Edward Island. We've got a full contingent going, and for the first time ever, we're going to have uh, com- competitors in these snowboard events. So they've been practicing on the round. They get together for meetings every now and then, but good luck to the athletes. The big announcement tonight will be, we'll find out who the flag bearer is. And that, of course, is a real honor to be bestowed upon a young athlete to bear the flag of the province as they march into the opening ceremonies. And then based on some performances, we'll see who the flag bearer is for the closing ceremonies with a big send-off for them tonight. Now, on a hyper-towny subject, there's a big deal afoot between Ballyhaley Golf Club and Club Ellie Golf. So there's a land swap, club swap deal in the offing. There's a few complexities to it that I'm not 100% sure I understand, but there's going to be a decision made on that front. And if you're a member of either club and would like to paint the picture about what you think and what exactly is at stake, I think it's a big one because it will have an impact on the city, especially with real estate development, possibly. But if you want to chime in there, you can do it. And on a golf note, today in 1999, former world number one British Open champion David Duvall, birdie on 18 uh, to shoot 59 to win the Bob Hope Classic. Became the third player to shoot a sub-60 round in the final round on the PGA Tour. Duvall was a beauty. Okay, so the big story in this province, and rightfully so, it was the fact that last Friday at 12 noon, the private service uh, operated by fewers and the impact on some seven communities. It came to pass that all the ambulance operators and paramedics were off the road, and that included their 35 ambulances. It did indeed require some government intervention, and that happened yesterday with an emergency sitting of the House of Assembly to debate the merits of Bill 24. It has now passed, and so basically that private service, which was once uh, overseen by the Labor Relations Act, now has an essential services tag. It uh, gets royal assent, we assume, today, and the paramedics will be back on the road immediately. It's a strange situation, no matter how you slice it. For starters, I think it's a fair question to be asked about why we have public versus private ambulatory services. And we'll get into some of the differences with rate of pay and what have you. So right off the bat, that's a concern. It's right to point out that this legislation should have been considered and uh, brought to the floor of the House of Assembly well before there was this type of job action. Now, I don't know if there's been any incidents reported where people in the seven communities impacted were unable to get emergency services. A lot of it fell back to volunteer fire departments, as we're all aware. But now that this bill has been passed, it does come across as a little bit counterintuitive. 
You know, there's a constitutional right to strike in this country. And these unionized members, represented by the Teamsters, they're in support of this legislation. So when you just stand back and think about it, it is odd that legislation that makes them essential and unable to strike is something that the union favors. I think timing is everything on this one. When you look at the issue regarding their woeful pension, the disparity in pay between private and public, it becomes becomes quite clear that this actually works in their favor. I've seen people refer to it as a lazy approach, but it looks like possibly a very pragmatic approach. Just imagine being a paramedic. With all the training that any paramedic might have on an Eastern Health operated and owned ambulance, so you work a 24-hour shift and you get paid for 11.43 of those hours. You work a 12-hour shift, you get paid for eight of those hours. We're basically asking highly trained professional first responders to volunteer their time. It makes no sense. So now their contract that they currently have with Fewers is up in March. And because of this essential services legislation, they'll be able to go all the way to the end of the rope, which is a binding arbitration process. So they're quite confident that when they put their case forward to the arbitrator and the rate of pay and what their pension looks like and the disparity between the public and the private offering, they'll get a better contract. It also comes along with timelines that does not allow the operator, in this case fewer, to dilly-dally or to drag their feet for getting things attended to, including this contract, which once again expires in March. So it does feel a little bit strange to have a union in favor of losing the right to strike, but it might work for them in the long run. Now, this does not fix health care. We all know it to be true. I saw some funny comments on social media, which is, I guess, standard operations. It does nothing to fix something, but it will possibly and hopefully stem the tide of the number of paramedics who are leaving, especially the private sector. So there's one story of this lady who's been a paramedic for five or six years. She's just finishing her registered nurse's training now and will leave the profession to go on and be a full-time registered nurse. They talk about the burnout and the frustration of knowing full well that when they go to work for their next shift, a 24-hour shift possibly, it will only result in pay for 11.43 hours. They talk about upon their retirement, they'll basically be receiving what someone who worked a career earning minimum wage would get and no more even though we know how important they are to the system. So I think it's a good thing, certainly for the residents of the communities that were impacted by the withdrawal of service, that it will be reinstated, very likely as early as today. But here comes another strange facet to the story. So these ambulances have basically been stored in the driveways of the homes of the paramedics that operate them. When the services were withdrawn last Friday, apparently the owner, and I guess it's up to him what he does with these ambulances, it's his asset, they picked them all up. So we're not even really sure where the 35 ambulances are. So even when Royal Assent is passed and the Labor Relations Board communicates that with the Teamsters, we still got to get everyone up and dressed and ready to go back to work and, yes, find out where their ambulance is so they can actually do the job. And on that front... There's been notice given to the town of Trapassi that even with the essential service contract now in place, that in six months they'll probably lose their ambulance out of that community. So we spoke with the mayor, uh, Rita Pennell, yesterday on that front. But I suppose for all involved, it's a overall good thing that this has been settled. 
and government had to intervene, but now the essential service tag has been applied. But I think, you know, it still brings the big question that paramedics have been asking for years is when is the government going to figure out the new modernized landscape of paramedic services in this province, period? The only little move that's been made in that world recently has been the amalgamation for dispatching air and ground ambulance. Okay, if that results in some efficiencies and streamlining and it makes things easier and better and more predictable, that's great. But I do think the number one question is, is there even room for public and private to operate in the same province with the same training, but not with the same pension or pay. Anyway, so maybe we'll hear from Hubert Daw this morning to talk about that because it is curious. Mr. Daw's in support of this. And ultimately, because that contract that expires in March now gives he and the Teamsters and the paramedics and ambulance operators they represent to what they think will be a better contract given the fact that an arbitrator will, will not be able to look past the differences and the issues that they face. So you want to take it on. We can do it. And in the world of healthcare. So we know that the federal liberals are in the middle of a three-day retreat. Today's day number two. Some updates still yet to come. The provinces and the territories have made their position quite clear regarding the federal health care transfer dollars, asking for way more than the federal government is now distributing. So it's some 28 or $30 billion they're asking for. You know, a lot of this may indeed be signed in bilateral agreements like we saw back in 2017, and they came with some conditions. At that time, if I remember correctly, the two areas that the federal government wanted the province to focus on were mental health services and long-term care. Each province has some distinctly different, unique issues that they're facing in the provinces. Many of them have very similar uh, concerns. But when you stand back once again and think about this, of course the premiers want more money. Of course they do. But when the number one issue that I can glean from reading papers across the country is that it's the battle for, ho- for ho- pardon me, healthcare workers. So more money, as opposed to potentially increasing access, reducing wait time, seeing better positive healthcare outcomes, what the money may indeed be uh, focused on is simply increasing the competition to recruit and hopefully to retain healthcare workers. So again, counterintuitivity seems to be playing an active role here in these conversations. You know, yes, more money, but it might even make things worse. So we'll see what the update is there. And we're going to apparently also get an update today from the federal liberals on the extraordinarily long wait time and backlog for people to get a passport. You know, it does boil back to, I think, fair criticism that these are one of the most fundamental services that the federal government serves. And if you can't pull it off, you know, I know the pandemic was a hiccup and a bunch of services, but that's coming across as more of an excuse than a reason today. So apparently we're going to get an update on that. And the prime minister. So when there was the move to digitizing your customs declaration, of course, the creation of the Arrive Can application became optional back in October. I think it's still very helpful, and it's you know, no more information being shared than you would if you just took a pen to paper on your paper declaration form which had to bum a pen from your seat neighbor. So the prime minister is, I guess, admitting that once again, the procurement process is brutally flawed. So he said it was illogical and inefficient for the government to go to the private sector for millions of dollars worth of contracts to create this Arrive Can app. One app, one of the organizations or companies that got the big contract, it was just a two-person firm. 
you know, and I know that there's more to creation than creating all the, uh, all the moving parts to have a operational efficient application, but that company then went on to subcontract some of the work out to another six organizations. So, like many things that governments do, logic sometimes go by the wayside. Efficiency might be a secondary concern. And now the Prime Minister admits, and he's asked the clerk of the Privy Council to have a look at exactly how this was handled, but for the love of God, when there was so much credence given to this application by the federal government, when there's been so much concern and lack of oversight and monitoring but how much money has gone out the door in the last few years, this is a glaring example of we need better. We just need better. And on that front, talk about money out the door. The federal liberal government has spent upwards of 100 billion, pardon me, 100 million dollars on consulting contracts with McKinsey and Company. McKinsey and Company absolutely have some pretty incredible baggage that they lug around, but they seem to be the consulting firm of choice for the federal government. Under nine years of Prime Minister Harper, the contractual value going to McKinsey was in and around 2.2, 2.3 million dollars. A hundred million dollars under the federal government at this point, the Trudeau Liberals, a lot of it has spent uh, looking at and consulting and guidance giving on the immigration file. Hmm. Also, this story is enough to drive you when we talk about those who are entitled to their entitlements. And this is about the new head of the BDC. Get a load of this stuff. I mean, how do these people think that we just will not be able to catch on and try to hold them to task? So uh, the Business Development Bank of Canada, which is a critically important crown corporation, so they were trying to strategize for what the organization would look like in the next 10 years. And what did they do? put massive contracts into the hands of McKinsey and Company once again, even though there had just been a new strategic document had been developed. But no, the incoming leader, uh, the president, is named Isabelle Houdon. Ms. Houdon has said she's going to reimagine, to shake up the BDC, you know, focus whether it be on women entrepreneurs, some small and medium businesses that have fallen through the cracks. But if we just were entertained at a a consultant to talk about strategizing over 10 years was the really need to go back to the consulting well, which is way too common an option for governments at all levels, municipal, provincial, and federal. But get a load of this in the world of entitlements. The amount of money spent, not only on travel, because travel's required, it's a big country. But Ms. Houdon, she had to fly her personal chauffeur wherever she went. Are we simply that entitled that we don't think that someone, man or woman, can get behind the wheel to traipse you around wherever you are in this country? Probably doing very likely important work, but flying around personal chauffeurs? You know, it's okay if you're a muckety-muck in the private sector answering to your board of directors and your shareholders because there's some limits that will be imposed on those people, but this is not good enough. Hopefully she does a great job because the Business Development Bank is obviously a linchpin in growing the economy and small and medium-sized businesses for sure. But flying around your chauffeur, maybe you can knock that off. I think that would be okay. Uh, we might hear from Darren King today, of course, Executive Director of Trades NL. We know more now about what Equinor's current play looks like with the construction of the two FPSOs that if they give the business sanction to move ahead with Bayda Nord. The concern is where the work is done. It's always been the concern. You know, we've left lots of money on the table. The oil operator does hold a lot of the cards in the deck when it comes to these negotiations, even though it's our product that they will be producing and selling. 
So I think we throw around a few things as if we all have a firm understanding of what they are. You know, like for instance, why does the top sides work? I think I know a bit about it because I've asked people in the oil business who do know about it. So maybe Mr. King would like to come on and talk about what the potential is, at this moment of time what it looks like, how many jobs would be in jeopardy, what the economic spin-offs would be that would be lost if the jobs are done elsewhere, whether it be in South Korea or in Singapore or in Texas or wherever the case may be. So there's big concerns there and it kind of hardly matters what you think about the oil industry if it's happening and if it does happen and the business sanction is granted by Equinor the next question is jobs and then of course summary conversation would be royalties there's going to have to be some give and take but be nice to understand in full what that all means and in the world of contrasting industries so oil and gas. Yesterday we had the province's consumer advocate, Dennis Brown, on the program, and he is saying that he thinks it's an absolute mistake for the ratepayers to be paying Newfoundland Power or Hydro anything upwards of $3 million for the installation of these fast charging stations, which would, of course, the concept there is to, if you build it, maybe they will come for more and more electric vehicles, of which there's only... Somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 electric vehicles in the province. I don't know the exact number. But Mr. Brown thinks that for the other rate payers who are not buying or even considering an electric vehicle, this is not what the PUB is mandated to do, which is, of course, to talk about the provision, the least costly option of provision of electricity to the rate payers of the province. And he thinks that falls outside their mandate. And he doesn't think the rate, the rate payer should pay for it unless, indeed, you are paying for an electric vehicle yourself. And then the next question on the side of that would be, how does the government forecast changing their tune when it comes to the amount of money brought forward with gas taxes, which will be lost? And, of course, we're talking about a generational change here. It won't be this time next year that there will be double or triple or quadruple the number of electric vehicles. It is a long-term play and a long-term opportunity for government to change tactics and tax structure and understand what's going to be lost and how it's going to be backfilled. But Mr. Brown thinks that you shouldn't be paying for it. What do you think? Uh, very last one. And I got lots, but this last one before we get to your calls. So there's been a GoFundMe page set up for the residents of the Outer Battery for possible legal action regarding <laughs> the Uber bright lights. It's nothing to giggle at if you live in the area because it's obscene. It really, truly is. So Jillian Kylie, in speaking with a resident, thought that one thing she could do was to put forward this amount of effort so that when and if there's going to be legal action, the people who are interested in helping pay those legal bills can go through GoFundMe to do it, but I'll put that out there for your consideration. And plus, whatever you want to talk about, I'm into it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com, but when we come back, we're going to have a great show. Karen's in the queue. She wants to kick off the program, talk about an airline passenger class action. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Karen. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I wanted to uh, bring forward or to your attention um, that I was one of the travellers that uh, was on the uh, WestJet Flight 328 uh, back in December uh, that we got stranded in Toronto. Um, I was there for an extra nine days, uh, myself and my partner, my friends in travel. Uh, Extra nine days stranded in Toronto. And uh, the problem was cited to us as a mechanical issue. So we were, I suppose, fortunate enough to uh, be, be given vouchers for hotel and meals. 
but in, in the end, it was still nine days. I totally missed Christmas with my family. We didn't get home here till the wee hours of um, December 27th and uh, spent out of pocket a lot of extra money. And it seems like WestJet are going to say that they're not responsible. So I was wondering, I was wondering if if there's uh, any collective movement on it as a group of people to to um, uh, counteract that action with the WestJet Airlines. Well, there's certainly the opportunity for it, possibly. I mean, I guess what you people need is for a, a lawyer or a law firm to take it on and put advertisements out for people to join the class and then to go down the process of having it certified. Things like this have been certified in the past. There was a class action against Air Canada that was certified in Quebec Superior Court, I believe, late 21 or early 22. So it's possible. Uh, I know that the customers who were thrown off track by Sunwing interruptions, they're also talking about the possibility for a class action lawsuit. How that would work, I'm not entirely sure, but look, it, a lot of this is amazing to me. So for starters, we've got a real developing problem here with the regional service by WestJet and Air Canada, WestJet in the West, Air Canada in the East, what that's going to mean for you know eliminating some small regional carriers. Then you've got the Canadian Transportation Agency that since 2019, when the Air Passenger Bill of Rights was brought forward, they've only been dealing with compensation for people who have had their travel disrupted. They haven't fined the airline one single time yet uh, with anyone who's had a compensation issue. So, you know, there's lots of angles at this, but the accountability of the airlines has been nothing, really, unless passengers say, well, I'm not going to fly with you. But if they've got us where they want us, there's only two major carriers in the whole country. So I don't know where this lands, but the potential for class action is absolutely real, as far as I can tell. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I have to, I have planned now more travel for the end of February. So uh, this time is with Air Canada, but I guess potentially the same thing can happen and I'll be in the same fix again, you know. It doesn't matter which airline it is, they can all do the same thing. Well, they can, right? I mean, they'll say, well, for instance, it was weather. If you had a, a, air, a aircraft and crew that was stranded in Vancouver during that winter storm around the Christmas season, and you were waiting in Toronto, and they were able to tell you, well, the weather has meant that our crew and our aircraft did not make it to Toronto, fine. But then they abandoned everybody. You know, the help desks were shut down. Communication was absolutely absent in so many cases. But curiously, there's a Regina in Saskatchewan, a law firm that is going to prepare a class action against Sunwing and Sunwing Vacations. So there's no reason to expect that that can't be extended to folks impacted by, for instance, WestJet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's probably going to happen. You know, again, this is not exactly about your specific concern, but you just think about it. There's lots of uh, people that might have to travel across most of or in the entire country. So when you have more of a regional approach taken by, for instance, WestJet out west and Air Canada in the east, even things like connecting flights and the potentially small regional carriers, which are going to get drummed out of it because, you know, with WestJet and Air Canada trying to recoup all those losses, that's why it's made it a little bit more efficient and cost-effective for them to focus on regions versus the national presence they once had. But I just wanted to throw that in there because that's going to further complicate travel in this country as far as I can tell. But, yeah, 
I'd be surprised if you don't have a lot of like-minded travelers, especially that were impacted at Pearson over the holidays. And I'm really sorry to hear that you missed your family holidays because, you know, I hear stories of people missing their weddings and all kinds of stuff and being home for the birth of their first grandchild and all these things. It's just awful. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it was a nightmare. And, uh, uh, you know, you're in a lineup of 100 people, well, for sure 100 people, and we're all going the same direction. We're all going to the same airport. And, it, you know, it takes, you get to the counter and it takes an hour for, for, for one person to get seen to. I mean, you know, we're all going to the same thing. You think it would be more efficient, you know? Absolutely. And then there were stories of aircraft that actually got off the ground at Pierce and made their way to St. John's International, and they weren't full. <laughs> and people sleeping on the floor in the airport in Toronto. I, anyway, if it was yeah. me, I'd still be up in arms. I know that. Yes. So, uh, uh, so what you're saying is uh, to contact um, a a lawyer or a, a law firm. I'm not 100 percent sure how it worked out in Regina, and uh, someone just sent me a very quick note saying it's called the Merchant Law Group LLP. They're filing the suit now. Whether that was they saw an opportunity legally uh, on the legal front to get involved here, or they were approached by a variety of people to represent them in the possibility to certify a class, but I don't think there's any downside in contacting a local law firm to see if anyone therein has any interest in forming this class. Because strength in numbers, when we talk about class action, you'll have very little success if you try it on your own. Of course, because a lot of these complaints have been simply settled uh, outside of court when the threat is, I'm not going to wait for the CTA. I'm just going to go to small claims court and name you in my complaint. And then they just get a settlement very quickly. But isn't that the nature of the beast with the airlines these days? It's, they're certainly not there for us. They don't no. seem to be anyway. But that's what I would do. You know, unless other like-minded folks contact us today and maybe you'll have a pool of a half a dozen like-minded stranded passengers that would like to join forces to evaluate whether or not there's a law firm around interested in taking this on. But that's, that's the step I would take, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you for your time. Sorry to hear your Christmas holidays were upended. Yes, and I'm, I'm thinking back. I'm sitting here yesterday, and I'm thinking back, and I, it's, just, it's like Christmas never happened because I have no memory of Christmas. <laughs> this is the first time since 19, I'm sure, 1983 that I wasn't home and uh, 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 with the family for Christmas. So it's a, it's a, it's a void. <laughs> I didn't have Christmas Day with my family, unfortunately, this year, and I can't remember because what happened in our family is the – my sister, who was going to host on Christmas Day, uh, a couple of them had got COVID on the 23rd, and so that went by the wayside. Then one of my other sisters says, well, let's do it on New Year's up at my place. And when that came around, I was in bed with that old sore throat bug that was going around. So I never had a turkey dinner first or last. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Listen, let me know what happens. We'll do. Our, I'll, uh, I'll touch back when I know something further. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Karen. There's going to be lots of consideration on class actions. You know, there's already one that's going to be tabled and looking for certification against Sunwing and Sunwing Vacations. But anyway, let's keep going. Line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Hello. caller. Line number two, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi, how are you today, Pay? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Not too bad, I guess. Good. Anyway, I'm calling in about this this Mr. Brown, whoever he is, is trying to get everybody to pay for the the electric cars and that for the for the stations and all this and all this this all crap. Well, actually, it's the exact opposite. Dennis Brown is the province's consumer advocate. He's saying that the ratepayers should not have to pay for installing these charging stations. Well, 
I took a round there this morning. That's what I heard there this morning and, and Geraldine and Mandir show. I must have took a round. But anyway, we shouldn't have to pay for them anyway. I mean, if all those dealerships want to bring in electric cars, let them bring it in. And let them foot the bill for it, for putting in those those power stations and everything else to, to power up your car and that. I'm mean, so what we have to pay for it. We're paying enough now. My God almighty, I'm 65 years old. Um, but I get signed to Canada pension and an and old age pension. I tell you, Patty, it's like a smack in the mouth. That's what, exactly what it's like. Yeah, the bills are piling up. Do you foresee any time in your future where you think whether your municipality or the provincial government uh, will be doing more and more electrifying? Because, I mean, for starters, you know, whether people talk about cutting down on emissions, it's less costly to operate electric vehicles. So it's going to change over time, I would think. Would you ever consider buying one? I definitely wouldn't. Okay. Any reason why? Definitely wouldn't. No, because, I mean, see, some people say after being on the radio and, that, and on the news and that, NTV news and that, in the evenings and that, and their time the batteries blowing up and everything else in their electric cars. Yeah, so, you know, it has I mean, happened. That, that, that's one thing that frightened the Bruins out of here anyway. I mean, say, who wants to take an electric car and go over the highway and then a battery or something, you know, explode in the back of the car? I said, it don't make sense, right? Not to me, it don't. I am saying, all gas, gas is expensive and everything else. But when you go and fire up your vehicle in the morning, at least you got something safe to drive in anyway. Yeah, we've had examples over the years where, for, you know, I remember it's not that long ago, maybe 20 years ago, where there was a big problem with Chevy trucks and fires. And you're right, batteries have caught on fire. There's no doubt about it. There's well-documented cases of it and lots of them. I'm waiting for it to advance a little bit. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I'm half interested in electric vehicle, but I'm going to wait a little while. I'd like to see some advancements in the technology and dealing with issues like fire and reliability and battery storage and how far I can travel. I'm, I'm waiting on the sidelines, too. Yeah, because I mean, so my nephew, he's got he's got the uh, he got a car down there, and she's half liquor and half gas. Yeah, one of those hybrids, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, so you know, he's just like he he wouldn't get rid of that for the world. Like if he's low on gas, all he got to do is hit the button on it, and she goes liquor. Right. So there you go. I mean, so something like that, I'd probably look into. But as an electric car alone, I definitely wouldn't even bother. Not even quote. I'm saying all those dealerships, you know, I was bringing them in. And if they ever get second increased around here, that your light bill and everything else is going to go up because all those power stations and, you know, for electric and all this all crap, well, they should be one foot in the bill for it. Well, there's got to be some cost recovery because you pay for the electricity at a charging station. The, the price tag being thrown around is around $3 million. And so I wonder what number is not included in that is how much cost recovery because of me paying for charging my electric vehicle and what that, uh, that last number looks like, I don't know. And then it's over time, how long would it take to recover the full $3 million with people powering up at, at a charging station, say for instance on the highway. But your, you know what, I'm gonna guess that your opinion is the popular one today. Because I, when Dennis Brown came on the show yesterday, within 30 minutes, I had 24, 30 emails saying exactly what Mr. Brown said and what you're saying. Yeah, but like I said, you know, I, I don't think I'd ever, I don't think I'd ever, personally, I don't think I'd ever, ever, ever have one of them. Unless they take solid gas vehicles after all or anything like that, but then you got no other choice if I ever live that long. Yeah, that's right. In some countries, they're talking about exactly that. Like in France, I think, you won't be able to buy a internal combustion engine vehicle in 2035. Uh-huh. There'll only be uh, electric vehicles. And the numbers are growing around the world. And whether or not people are interested in it, I'll leave that up to them. It's not, it's not my money. Uh, I mean, it's, it's your money, not mine. It's, who am I to tell anybody what to do? But yeah. I get your point. I'm glad you called. Anything else you want to say? No, that's it, Patty. Another thing about the 
Bayard Ed or Battery down there, as far as I'm concerned, if anybody down there has got a last name of license to carry a gun, all those lights, you know, down at any time when you're getting ready to go to bed, I'd blow them off to friggin' sardines down there. I'd hate to see anyone get in trouble. Pardon? What is it they got down there anyway? Was it all twine sheds or something they got down there? They got those lights in? No, no, no. This is a fellow who's a new property owner in the Outer Battery. Uh, The twine loft story was that... 10.30 one night, all of a sudden there was a chainsaw doing some unexpected renovations outside that twine loft in the outer battery. But no, this is a private uh, residential owner, and he, I'm telling you what, for people who scoff at it across the province that you know, haven't seen them, it's absolutely blinding and completely obscene how bright they are. It's uh-huh. madness. And that's what I'm saying. You know, you take the poor people who's living down around there. And I'm going to say, well, you know, there's, there's probably some people down there living in that area that could be down there. My God, ever since they, you know, they were born or bought a house down there, or, you know, when they got married and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And, I have, and I have to put up with that crap. Yeah, people are very displeased, I'll call it. Yeah, and, no. you know, I'm not advocating anybody getting themselves in any trouble, but it is remarkable that the lights have not been dealt with by some frustrated individual. I know someone took a swing at him last week. It didn't haul him down. He was arrested, and I don't I don't know what's going to become of it, but I am surprised that they continue to shine night overnight. Uh, good talking to you this morning. Appreciate the time. Same to you. You, you take care. All the you best. Have a good day, Teddy. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Break time. When we come back, update from the business manager of Teamsters Local 855. That's Hubert Daw. And the passing of Bill 24 awaiting royal assent today. Uh, essential services tag now given to the private sector ambulance operators. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the business manager with the Teamsters 855. That's Hubert Daw. Hubert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back, and I'm not sure if this is congratulations or my condolences, but let's go. So it seems counterintuitive that a union would be in favor of having having their right to strike removed and going to, all the way to binding arbitration. I think that's counterintuitive. I think I understand the reason why. Why is the union in support of this move? Well, we haven't lost the right to strike, first of all, Patty. You know, the legislation just says that we have to have an essential services agreement in place which will ensure that there is an emergency ambulance there when the people of this province call for an ambulance. So we haven't lost our right to strike, which, which, which was a good part of this legislation. The timing was pretty bad. I mean, it is, it is back-to-work legislation at its core, but essential service designation is something that we've been looking for for our paramedics and EMRs and dispatchers for a long time. They are an essential service. I mean, you know, and why is it taken for, you know, these you know, men and women to go off and they you know, stop providing the service for you know for the government to realize that you know what they are essential you know and we should give them that designation, and that's that's an important step and I mean it meant a lot to our members. I mean we had we had a lot of members in the gallery yesterday at you know the state for the whole day for this to see this act enacted, and uh, you know it, it was a, it was a small victory for them yesterday. We haven't lost our right to strike, but now we have a means, and this employer has been very very difficult and loves procrastinating. Now we have the law that's going to prevent him from doing that and we think that's going to trigger more effective negotiations going forward okay so let's say the push arrives at shove you find yourself in a similar predicament as you did last friday now with the essential services tag what happens as opposed to with the full withdrawal of services is it immediately to binding arbitration and definitive timelines for it or what actually happens now what what happened last friday what would happen if the same sentiment uh, went through the ranks this Friday, okay. or whenever it gets worse. So, 
Yes, yeah, so, so the essential the, the essential service language had been in place, and you know the the, the accolades of how 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 far in advance we have to get this document drafted. It's it it runs concurrently with our negotiations. So back in November, when we reached the point that you know we were we were eligible to go for a strike vote because it's two different acts. So you know going through the labor labor act for you know getting ourselves to the strike position that runs alongside of the essential services. So we have the essential services act in place once, or excuse me, agreement in place that sits to the side. We get down to collect we get down to collective bargaining. So we now when we when we. Uh, when we when we get to the get the, you know if we're unfortunate enough that we can't reach an agreement on on this moving forward, the essential the essential service agreement will come come into play. So those that we've deemed that are essential will continue the work. The rest of the employees will will take the strike action, and we we still have all all our bargaining powers that would be normally associated with strike action. So you you will continue to see the picket line set up on the side of the road and things like that. So as to what happened Friday, the only difference would be is you're guaranteed that emergency ambulances will be available when you call. Okay. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be dealing with hypotheticals. I'm going to ask it anyway, just based on how and why the union was in support of this. Had this contract not been expired in March, but expiring in next November, would it have changed the way the union thinks about it? Because I think when you paint a picture of when the contract expires now, if it makes its way to uh, uh, an arbitrator in the form of binding arbitration, you paint your picture. The pressure's on your operators and your paramedics, paid for 11.43 hours on a 24-hour shift. So you're quite confident that you'll get a favorable ruling versus what would be long, protracted, frustrating negotiations with Mr. Fewer. Does the timing make a difference for your position on this, this essential services tag? Um, this time around, no, but I, I, in, in future negotiations, it definitely will. Uh, you know, ideally, this, this, this would have been in place, and we would have had the essential service agreement in place before we took action on Friday, and then, you know, then we would have, you know, continued on with, with our negotiations. And we have to keep in mind, too, that essential bargaining isn't the end game, or it could be the end game, but it's not necessarily the only option that the Labor Board has, or Labor, yeah, the Labor Relations Board has to try to resolve this issue, right? The thing is, it's, it's one that we didn't have right now. You know, we, we've gone through the conciliation process. You know, the employer has shown nothing but contempt for the whole process. And up until this legislation was passed yesterday, the only, the only option we had is to take the action that we took on Friday past. Now with this new legislation, you know, if you know, when it becomes obvious that we are at an impasse, either side can make an make an application to the board. The board can the board will, the board will order a hearing, and then one of the options that they have following that hearing is, okay, you're going to have to go to bonding arbitration here now. There's going to be we're going to have to have a third party listen to your arguments, and they will decide what the best option is. And you know, given the current situation that we have now. I honestly and truly cannot phantom that any impartial third person would sit down and look at this system and say, you're working 24 hours, you're getting paid 11.43? Yeah, that seems fair. You're working 12 hours, you're only getting paid for eight? Yeah, that seems fair. You're going to work 72 hours, you get to the end of that shift, call comes in, you're going to work for free? Yeah, that's fair. It's, it's just inconceivable. But this is what we're facing now from the employer in the current situation. Now we have an opportunity to say, to have somebody else look at the situation objectively. And I, I, I appreciate, I, I'm coming from that, this from the union side, and we have our objectives, and the employer has his objectives. 
you know, and, you know, we, we might get a little bit blinders on sometimes when it comes to that type of that, the negotiations there. But we believe that there are real tangible issues here that can be addressed by a third person and within the means that the employer has to make life better for these men and women that are out on these that are out providing these services in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, it wouldn't be me working 24 getting paid for 11 and a half. You know, I think many people who have jobs outside the unionized ranks probably work more than they get paid for, you know, doing some work after supper, replying to emails and stuff, but nothing like the the pressures that are on a paramedic and knowing full well that today's my 24-hour shift and I'm only going to get paid for 11.43. I can't imagine I would even entertain it. Given that, do you have numbers? I think you took this role back in 2019. Have you lost, and if you have lost paramedics, paint us a picture with how many have said enough is enough. I'm either going to move and be a paramedic elsewhere, or like this lady I heard in the news this morning, she's uh, just finishing her training to be a registered nurse, and she's leaving the uh, ranks of paramedics and going into the RN business. How many paramedics have you lost since 2019? I... Because of the turnover, I really don't have a specific number at this time. I can't. I can give you examples, though. Um, Holy Road has a secondary ambulance, not on the road because we don't have enough people to staff that truck. The poor people of Fairland and Cape Royal area, you have one, you, one paramedic in your area. So you, you, you're relying on casuals to be coming in and filling the other three. Well, you, you actually have six positions down there, but we've, we've managed to keep, keep one truck going. So, you know, you, there's only one for one paramedic in the Fairyland area. You know, um, we go out to uh, Boyd's Cove. Boyd's Cove runs one primary. Now, that's our emergency ambulance on one side of the schedule because that's all the staffing that they have. So it's, it's, it's had a significant impact. We, we're not even meeting our minimum requirements now as, as required by the ASA because the bodies are just not there. And, you know, and I, I spoke about this yesterday as being a crisis. And, I mean, I don't like throwing that word around, but it's, it's, it's a situation that needs to be addressed. The, the pressure is being put back on the paramedics who are in the system to pick up the slack on behalf of the employer without any increase in compensation. And they're just getting stressed out. They're getting burnt out. They're getting injured. And then we got more people gone out of the system. Okay, so I'm not sure how and whether or not this is inside your crosshairs or your ballywick, as they say, but so you've had obvious contentious relationship with uh, Bob Fewer, who owns and operates Fewer Services and those seven communities that they have ambulances and paramedics in. There's some talk out there that even, even his ownership might be in its last days. There's some talk of a West Coast operator buying up fewer services. Do you know that to be true? And if so, how does that impact the Teamsters? I, I know that the offer has been made. Uh, the employer that, or excuse me, the gentleman that's looking at buying up these services has reached out to us and asked for a preliminary agreement for negotiations. Uh, I don't know what stage that's in or how that process actually even works. Um, I'm hoping to get more information on that as, as, as we're moving forward now and as that develops. How does this uh, Bill 24 impact not uh, the uh, operators outside of your Teamsters union? For instance, some of the that are represented by NAEP, do they fall automatically into the same category, or is this somehow specifically about your operation and your union? No. 
The the back to work part of this this legislation is specific to the Teamsters Union, but on a go forward basis, when all of these unions now the NAEP ones that you mentioned or the QP ones that we have on the West Coast go into negotiations, they now have the same bargaining power with this legislation, and will have the same requirement to have an essential service agreement in place prior as as they start negotiating. Last one. So Royal Assent, we assume, will come today. Then you'll hear from the Labour Relations Board that it's back to work. It is, but then of course it's one thing to have the paramedic in uniform ready to go quite another for them to have a bus to get in so do we know where the ambulances are i'm led to believe that mr fewer picked them up from where whatever homes driveways they were being stored in uh, you know per normal course of action so do we know where the ambulances are I, I haven't had any correspondence on that. I, I do want to say, Patty, that the Royal Ascent was given last night. Oh, it has been completed. I apologize. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm not, I wasn't sure if you were aware of that or not. But, uh, yeah, so we received the letter this morning. We emailed a letter out to all our members and advised them that they are going back to work today. Now, how soon they're back on the job is, is you know, within the employer's purview, and he hasn't reached out to us with a return-to-work plan. But I'm, I know part of that plan is going to include getting those ambulances back to the coverage areas. So, you know, we went, we, I received notice about 7 o'clock this morning. I informed all our members that we were going back to work. Uh, when those ambulance services start to become activated again, that's Mr. Fjord is uh, taking that and keeping that close to his chest. Are the days of uh, private offerings over, or should they be, and everything be operated by the health authority? It, the, the health authority would give the employer, uh, give the employees a, a better life, a better, a better quality of life, better wages, give them their pensions. There's no doubt about that. Uh, to the general public, there's no difference in the quality of service that you're receiving. You know, the oh, administration no. of it makes it very difficult for the for the medics that are working on the side versus, you know, those working under the health authorities. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, it's the same individuals. You know, if the private contractor can't attract people into the coverage area and, put, and, and man the required equipment that's there, if you put a public service in there, they're still going to face those same issues and same and same uh, demands being placed on them and not having the, you know, the, the human resource part to be able to meet those demands. So it's, I, I really don't know. We have to make this life more attractive to the paramedics in particular, but I mean, the healthcare in the general is facing a very similar situation. If we can, if we can improve, you know, the wages, give them some, some, you know, some great benefits, you know, give them some work-life balance. You know, the government is coming up with all kinds of incentives to get nurses and doctors to go into these rural areas and that. Maybe we need to look at some kind of incentive program like that. Maybe that would be more enticing to get people to uh, to uh, move out into the rural areas where, where there is, uh, you know, difficulty getting people to go. I mean, I was told yesterday, and I was unaware of it, but apparently there was a, an incentive program years ago that if paramedics were willing to go and put a 10-year tenure into uh, into an area in rural Newfoundland and Labrador, they actually received a bonus for, for doing that. And, of course, we all know once you've been there for 10 years, you're established, you're probably going to stay there at the end of that time. Sounds to me like a worthwhile investment. Yeah, that's the only reason I ask the question is, you know, leveling a playing field might eliminate some of the concerns that, you know, for instance, the Teamsters, QP, and NAEP are voicing today versus what we hear from the Regional Health Authority employees. Uh, Hubert, I appreciate the time this morning. Hopefully things return to work smoothly, and I'm sure there's a big sigh of relief being breathed, not only by the folks you represent, but the communities they serve. 
I definitely, and then we we thank we thank the communities, and and the support has been absolutely phenomenal for our for our members over the over the weekend, and I, I can't express enough how much that means to our members. You you validated what they're doing, and you've showed them that they they are they indeed are a valuable part of your community and your healthcare in general. Thanks for this, Hubert. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's Hubert Taub, Business Manager, Teamsters Local, 855. Break time. When we come back, Doug wants to talk about cost of living issues. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number four. Doug, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Good morning. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, Mary. Good. Good. First-time first caller. And uh, I've always wanted to give you a call. I've been listening to your program for over the years, for many, many, many years, really. And uh, I didn't really call, but... Uh, you know, I guess my main reason for calling this morning is uh, I wish I had to get through earlier because I'm short on time here and I've got to take my wife to a 10.30 appointment. But I can't help but think about the uh, the cost of living with respect to uh, groceries, you know, the supermarkets. Yep. You know, I can't believe that there can't be some sort of a, a government regulatory board put in place to govern the, those uh those people that charge you could charge maybe three dollars a week for uh, two liters of milk. The next week you can charge four fifty or, or whatever. I mean, surely God, there's got to be some sort of a, a regulation be put in place where uh, those 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 uh, multinational companies they can uh, they can gouge people to, to death, you know, and especially the poor elderly people and the poor people that are on low income and uh, like that. Like you know, we're not so bad ourselves. I mean, we can we can manage, but. Uh, you know, it, it, it's food is something we got to have, and those big operations are, are they, they're, they got a free, they got a free, uh, uh, you know, the, the doors open for them to charge whatever they exactly want. And there's no no government government regulatory board and they say, okay, you can pop your prices up two percent, three percent, or five percent, but not not by thirty or forty or fifty percent. From one week to the other, you know where I'm getting at. I do. For, uh, food inflation uh, far outpaces uh, regular inflation, which cooled off to about 6.3 percent in December. But food food inflation is around 11.4 percent. So, but a couple of points to uh, speak to what you just said there. I think you're right. There has been a parliamentary committee struck that had testimony offered by the executive of the big grocery store chains. There is mm. very likely going to be a competition bureau, but it's not about what we're charged at the shelf, but it would have an impact there. What they're talking about mm. is just how the big players have so yeah. much clout over the supplier. So like Loblaws or Empire, they can simply go to the supplier and say, we want every uh, single product that you have in this category or what have you. Because then all of a sudden, they've hoarded the product. The small and medium-sized operators, they can't get it. And so consequently, Mm. there's no competition because the smaller store doesn't even have the product, let alone be able to compete on price. You know, Mm. the question about how much is too much, where profit ends and gouging begins, I think that's what the parliamentary committee is trying to figure out. But then, you know, you're picking winners and losers, too. So, look, I'm sick of the grocery store prices. I cringe every time I look up at the screen after they scan all my products. But something has to give. Some yeah. control absolutely yeah. would be helpful. Yeah. Like you take one specific say Let's take, for instance, uh, 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 two liters of milk. You, yeah. you can go to shoppers, and you can get it for, say, 340 You go up to Dominion or Sobeys or whatever, and you got to pay 450 I mean, you know, you know, I can't see how that's been allowed. Like, you know, how can how can the, uh, I know the government? The more money the, the charging for for uh, for items, 
the more taxes that they're, they're making or whatever. I don't know if that's the case or whatever. Well, but, no taxes uh, on product like that, for instance. Oh, that's I mean, true. No taxes on product. Yeah, I mean, that would be straight up uh, revenue. Now, mm-hmm. the question, of course, it costs more to operate that business, but their profits are also up, not because I say so, but because Empire, the company that owns, say, for instance, Sobeys and uh, Shoppers and a couple of other, actually a number of other companies, their revenues are not only skyrocketing, but so are their profits. So these are fair questions to be asked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. And uh, and and also, you know, like, uh, I'm up in age, you know, I mean, I, I, I worked on the upper, I'm bringing up now the upper church of the deal. I always beat the debt the last 40, 45, 50 years or whatever, mm-hmm. 65 since it started. But, you know, and I'm very proud of Fury to put, to put together this committee got in place now to try to negotiate with, with Quebec on this upper, uh, you know, the the upper Churchill deal when it expires. You know, I looked it up this morning on the Internet. Quebec has taken in $28 billion up to uh, June June of 2019. Yeah, that's the last number. It's only about $2 billion for us. And it's two billion for us, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's ridiculous, boy. And that little two billion that we got, we're responsible for the maintenance of the of the of the Church of Falls project, keeping it running. Yeah, I mean, the lack of an escalator clause, they're buying it for pennies on the dollar, the power, and of course, selling it for maximum profit. So you're right, the last numbers are from 19. They're the ones I'm familiar with. $28 billion of profits for Quebec, $2 billion for this province. But Mm -hmm. now, just for clarification's sake, the committee, of which there's actually two, that have been struck by the province, is to simply understand what 2041 means and to put some recommendations into the heads of whether it be Minister Parsons, Minister, or pardon me, Premier Fury, or others. They're not actually Mm -hmm. acting negotiating negotiating no. anything they're just looking no. at what 2041 means well my my concern is you know are we going to end up signing another stupid agreement for another 65 or 70 years you know because quebec's got the right to, uh, to the uh, the power lines going into quebec and and reaching the power up to the up to the state you know i mean if it's going to cost us x amount of dollars to run our own line why don't we start looking at that now right you know because the Church of Falls is going to be forever. I mean, it's a hydro project, and water is going to run as long as eternity, right? You know, and uh, and the fact that I, I worked on the project in '69, and and I was there, right? You know, and uh, I, the way that Newfoundlanders were treated. I should. I'm not coming down on Quebec, but the way that Newfoundlanders were treated. Uh, a lot of people around my age, 74, 75, can tell you that. Uh, you know, we were grossly treated on the job, and now we've been grossly treated less number of years since 1965 up to now and I'm afraid it's going to continue after 41 I hope not anyway but uh that's my that's my feeling on it, right? Uh, listen, it's fair. Uh, it's shameful that the federal government, various additions, have not opened up the east-west corridor for transmission of power. You know, all that latitude given to Quebec has been really destructive to a lot of projects, and absolutely including hydro, the ability to get to market from this that's province right. and our assets. So right. what happens in 41? You know, I, th- I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that the conversation is going to include Muskrat Falls, Gull Island, Atlantic Loop, and all the rest of it. If we just try to negotiate it on a standalone, probably not. Hydro-Quebec, actually, 15% of the power that they sell comes from Churchill Falls. Uh, The Upper Churchill is the 16th largest uh, power-generating asset in the world, 5,428 megawatts compared to 824 at Muskrat Falls. But now Hydro-Quebec still owns just over 34% of the project anyway. That's their equity stake in it, even though we all think 2041 is the end of the road for them. It's not. Mm -hmm. No. 
No, because I heard Fury saying last week that uh, there's a number of clauses there that extends beyond 41, you know? Yeah. What, in some favour of Quebec. Yeah, and what impact they have, I don't know. That's why I'm really anxious to hear the results of the uh, the panel, which sometimes that's, you know, government just passing the buck along. But I think it's important that we understand what 2041 really means. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You've seen a mouthful there because, I mean, a lot of us uh, ordinary people uh, like myself, I mean, I'm not a big educated person, but I understand what's half, I understand what's on the go. And I think it should be publicized, what's, what's happening, like, you know, and, and, and make the, 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 the uh, especially people in your position to, as you know, to be able to com- come in and, and advertise what's, what's, what's happening or what's going to happen in the future or whatever, right, you know? I'm thirsty for that info, I can tell you that much, Doug, and I'm really glad you made time as a first-timer this morning. No, thank you very much, buddy. Good talking to you. Go love it. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, important points there. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Chris is from the K of C. Which one? Find out. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go top of the board. Line number one. Good morning, Chris O'Brien. You're on the air. Yeah, Patty, thanks for taking the call. No problem. Uh, we have uh, Valentine's uh, coming up now on February 11th. Uh, tickets are $25 single. The meal is a stuffed chicken breast. Uh, meal time is 7 o'clock, and the music is for by uh, Art Woolridge. So what do you got lined up for the singles? Pardon me? What do you got lined up for the singles for a Valentine's Day celebration? Oh, we got... Uh, you know, we got uh, we can hold about 250 people here, right, at our our, our, our building here, and uh, you know, the stuffed chicken breasts, you know, is a good meal that everyone generally has. You know, absolutely. Mm. Is this something you do over the years, all the time, Chris? Yeah, on Valentine's Day and uh, Paddy's Day, and, you know, and four or five different functions during the year that we have at the. Okay, I really appreciate that uh, you've got something going on. And, you know, Valentine's Day is one of those days where the people will be looking for something to do, whether it be with their partner or to possibly find a partner. So give us uh, us a number for a contact and how much are the tickets once again? Uh, Tickets are $25 single. Uh, Meal is uh, stuffed chicken breast. Uh, meal, meal will be served at 7 o'clock and then then dance away then for the, for the night. Like you would. There at What you should do, and this is just a suggestion, you, especially if you get a big load of people who buy uh, tickets as singles, mm. you should uh, give them a dance card when they arrive at the door. <laughs> <laughs> Fill up your dance card. Now you got an evening ahead of you. Good to have you on, Chris. Good luck with it. Okay, thanks a lot, Patty. You're welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That uh, whole bit about the dance card, I know that's pretty retro, but hey. All right, let's go. Line number three, say good morning to the PC member from Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Loyola, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How about yourself? Good. Just calling in this morning, Patty, regarding the news that your pastor received last week regarding your ambulance service and uh, the last remaining ambulance been taken from the area. In, well, they gave a 180-day notice to uh, to say that they were removing the last ambulance from Trapassi. And, uh, you know, I've been dealing with one ambulance issue since uh, June of 2021, having taken the one out, the second one out, and now they're going to give notice that they're going to take the last one out. In 180 days, they got to give notice. Obviously, that's in their contract. So, you know, it's certainly not acceptable, and the government should be looking at that and looking at it right now and not waiting for 
time to expire and leave us in the lurch in the areas. Not only Trapassi, it's the surrounding areas that the ambulance covers. So, you know, it's, a, it's certainly a big concern for the residents of the area and, uh, you know, something the government should be on right now, for sure. What does government do on that front? It's, you know, one thing to uh, label them all as essential services, and this only extends at this moment in time until the contracts expire with uh, NAEP and QP. So are you suggesting that government tell the operators that if you want some money, for instance, Fiora Services gets about $7.7 million, $7.7 million from the provincial government, does not include patient fees necessarily and or mileage. So are you saying as a string attached to contracts and government support, there should be government dictating where ambulances are located? Well, Paddy, they need to have an ambulance in the area for sure. Oh, I'm not arguing that. I've got friends out in the Trapassian area. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, they certainly need to have that. But the government, I mean, when they send in a 180-day notice and they send it to the town, the government signs off on that. They don't just do that without letting the government know. And, you know, they, they known, they've known about that. I'm not sure how long, but, you know, something that they have to step in and look at. I mean, how they do it, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, right now, I mean, it's something that they got to look at. We need to have ambulance service in the area. And, you know, we've had ambulance service here during Christmas. We had an ambulance service here from December 26th until, until January 7th. There was an ambulance sitting in Cape Royal. And, you know, when the ambulance leaves Trapassi, that means there's no ambulance at all on the whole southern shore. That ambulance uh, was sitting in Cape Royal, not plugged in, and not, and not no one there to resource it. So, you know, here we are sitting in the area, and if somebody has an emergency, let's say a stroke, very serious issue, and they're sitting in Cape Royal, Calvert, Permuse, or Inhouse, and they think that an ambulance is going to be there in 30, 35 minutes, then, you know, they got to make that decision then. If, if they're going to wait, fine. But if they don't, if they think the ambulance is going to be there in 30 or 35 minutes and it's going to be an hour and a half, two hours, they'll put them in a car if it's a stroke victim because they got to get to the hospital as quick as they can. So it's a safety issue in that way. And, you know, I called the government to express my concerns and that, to let the residents know that if the ambulance is not in service there, that they should know because they've got a decision to make whether they're going to wait for an ambulance or get somebody in a car and meet an ambulance on the way to the St. John's. So, you know, it's a big issue, very big concern. Yeah, of course it is. I wonder what the, like I asked Hubert from Teamsters uh, just earlier in the program about we've heard and he confirmed that there has been an offer made by a West Coast operator. I know the name, but I, I'll leave it out because I haven't had him confirm it, that there's been an offer to take over the fewer's operations. What that might mean for expanding service or further contraction of service, I don't know, but I'd be sure curious to know where that deal, what that deal looks like and, you know, a timeline for it to happen. I would imagine, given what uh, we saw yesterday in the House of Assembly, that if Mr. Mr. Fewer feels like he's out of steam with this industry, then this will probably speed up this particular deal and potential foreclosure. So I'm going to reach out with both. Now, we've had no luck trying to speak with Mr. Fewer, I, and I get that. But if there's a deal on the table, I'd really be curious to know what's inside that deal, what it means for places like Trapassi, because erosion of service is one thing when you don't, for instance, have, have blood collection. Quite another when you don't have a first responder. Oh, for sure, Patty. I mean, a big concern. You know, the residents are concerned. And, you know, it's something that, you know, that I've been on the second ambulance to try to get back, and now they're taking the remaining one. And, you know, listen to the story this morning where you had said about another operator maybe, Bond. I haven't heard that. So, you know, it's something that, you know, certainly uh, interesting to hear, and certainly so hopefully somebody will jump in and take it over and, and be able to do something in the area. And, and besides that, I've been dealing with a doctor issue in Trapassi. So here we are with neither doctor. 
uh, you know, they got nurse practitioners that go there a couple of days a week and, uh, you know, been dealing with that. And, you know, the doctor issue, they, they come back and say it's a HR issue. And, uh, you know, they, they haven't filled it. You know, they have somebody that's of interest that wants to go there. And they won't, uh, they won't let her leave her practice uh, where somewhere else. But, you know, she, she's looking to go there. They won't let her go because, you know, they're going to leave 1,100 patients somewhere else. But what if she leaves and goes to New Brunswick? What if she leaves and goes to Nova Scotia? Now we got 1,100 people that she's leaving besides that and another seven or 800 that have uh, been taken care of up in the Traverse area. So, you know, they got to they gotta start uh, looking at some of this stuff and, and, you know, getting it done, basically. And I've been fighting that as well for a long period of time. Well, that's the worst-case scenario is if, you know, there was – they've accommodated uh, Dr. Maydan now with his hopes, and he's going to continue practicing full-time I believe that's on the Conegra Peninsula and then you know accommodations to be made for whether it be uh, the doctor who wanted to stay on Bell Island or on Fogo Island even though that one's a little bit dodgy I think behind the scenes but uh, Dr. Megan Hayes and I know that we don't ne- uh, necessarily get to speak with the senior bureaucrats but I'm sure that is the most complex issue she deals with is how to tailor up a package to have one healthcare professional or another willing and wanting to work in smaller more rural parts of the province because it's a different kintle of fish to work in a small remote community versus a larger urban center so i totally yeah, get it sure. and the worst case scenario that i was about to say is it's one thing for them to say okay well i say i guess i still have to practice here around pearl versus as you rightfully point out what about all of a sudden this time next month they're living and working in halifax so yeah. i get it i appreciate the time loyal anything else Thank this morning? You. Uh, well no I, you know I, I will say that regarding the doctor issue as well you know she's uh, filled out or emailed those people and uh, they never emailed her back and they had some conditions that they're trying to work on this is a long time working on that and you know they haven't really sat down and got to the doctor I mean here she is willing to go to the area now she may leave somewhere else but she's willing to go to this area and you have trouble getting people in rural Newfoundland and they're not calling her they're not sitting down and you know she's had uh, probably a phone call or two and never it, just where are they doing with negotiations? That's what I'll say. You know, where where are they stuck? And let's see if they can get it figured out. But they haven't seemed to be able to reach out to that doctor and get that done. And it's too bad because she's uh, she's looking to go there. And how often do we see people that want to go to rural Newfoundland and here they have an opportunity and they don't seem to be jumping on it? Appreciate so, it. Uh, appreciate your time, Daddy. Thanks, Loyola. Thank you. Bye. Welcome. Bye-bye. It's Loyola O'Driscoll. He's the PC member for Fairland. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about greed. Real, perceived. Don't go away. Yeah, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I wanted to quickly respond to Dennis Brown and a caller he had early regarding electric vehicles. So obviously in Newfoundland and Labrador, we have, you know, um, around 600, according to Dennis, yesterday EVs. And, and, you know, he doesn't feel that the utilities slash the ratepayers should have to subsidize the uh, Installation of the fast chargers. So, so this is not getting involved in financing what people have in their own homes. It'd be infrastructure that would be spread across the province. And he makes the argument that private industry should be paying for chargers. And the, you know, one of the jobs of government is to be involved in public policy where there is not a market for something, but where in the future there will be, and to try and influence it somehow. So, you know, one of the things that you know the argument is made. And it was made by Mr. Brown that uh, that basically there was no incentive. Why should the ratepayers subsidize electric vehicle people? But you know, I'd like to make the argument that uh, looking in the future, uh, EVs are the future, and uh, the more electricity that 
we can consume locally on some level because we have to pay for Muskrat Falls and our infrastructure. On some level, it actually helps all ratepayers to uh, increase consumption of electricity within the province, and that would be right in line with EVs. Uh, you know, and the other thing for people to consider, I know that people talk about gas tax and all that kind of stuff, but, the, but a large portion of the money we spend on fuel actually leaves the province. It goes to Irving's or it goes to Saudi Arabia or it goes wherever our oil comes from. So by using our own electricity locally, that money that would normally leave the province and go can then be spent locally and hopefully then HST and, and uh, more ta- more profits, more taxes being paid locally. So so it, it's not a zero-sum game. You know, I just want to kind of expand the conversation. Well, there's definitely some offsets, as you point out. You'd be buying electricity produced here. Revenue remains here. Uh, you would be another customer for hydropower, whether that comes from Beta Bay or Muskrat Falls or anywhere else or Holy Road. So there are points. The concern brought forward by many is, you know, how does government replace lost gas tax revenue when we're talking about road work? Well, of course, there's all kinds ways government construct uh, revenue streams and earmark monies for anything, including road work. But the gas tax was created for that. Road work, maintenance, uh, repair, replace, bridges, and all the rest of it. Government brings in in around $380 million a year in gas tax, but only spends around 80 to $85 million in road work projects. So there's a big number there that we have years to figure out how to overcome because we won't lose road work money if we're simply talking about the collection of the gas tax. Correct. And the other thing to factor, too, is tourism. I actually had a little bit of uh, vacationing at home, Bev and I did this year, and we ran into three different tourists driving electric cars, one from Washington, one from B.C., and one from Ontario, who drove all the way that distance. And so that infrastructure also plays into it, and and more and more people are going to be looking, especially people who are conscious of their footprint, not wanting to fly, but they'll actually get in their EVs and, and drive here. And that only works if we have... Uh, infrastructure for them to be able to charge. The other quick thing I want to mention is uh, there was a gentleman earlier talking about EV fires and uh, just some statistics for people to chew on. Um, basically, 25 fires per 100,000 vehicles, electric vehicles sold. That's that's the uh, that's the ratio. For gas and diesel vehicles, it's 1,530 fires per 100,000 vehicles sold, and hybrids. Because you kind of have the worst of both worlds. You have a combustible fuel and the potential for a fire from a battery, although it's very small, 3,475 uh, 3, fires per 100,000 vehicles sold. So just I know the gentleman was talking about his son having a hybrid. Just so just some education that electric vehicle is way safer than a gas and diesel vehicle for fires. However, a hybrid is exponentially more risky. It's all relative, but just for people's information. And I, I mean, like the advancement of technology and the move into uh, what they're calling a solid-state battery versus lithium-ion and what have you further reduces the potential for fire exponentially, as far as I can tell, based on the reading that I do on it. And, you know, someone pointed to the fact that, you know, one time last year there was a Portuguese uh, ship that sank in the Atlantic Ocean 13 days after a fire started on board, and the complication there was not that the electric vehicles and or their components started the fire, but how difficult it is to put out that fire when indeed it happens and the volume of water required for suppressing those types of fires. So it wasn't because it had just EVs on it. It was variety factors as to why that made it a problem. And there were some 4,000 vehicles on it. The person tried to make the comparison to what happens if you have uh, X amount of complement on Marine Atlantic, for instance. But Marine Atlantic can't carry anything like that. 
this was a supply ship. So I think they're kind of two different conversations, but I'm glad you added contextual numbers to fire risk and what have you. Thanks, sir. Okay, so I want to pop over the main reason I called. Sure. Um, over the last week, there's been a, there was two individuals on. Paul Din, um, conservative, was on talking about uh, private, sec- private sector ambulance attendants not being able to dream about Freedom 55. And again, shown a total disconnect between the public and private sector. I mean, very few people who are privately employed have any fantasies of retiring at 55. And and the other thing is Mayor Reader Pennell was on yesterday, and she called she referred to greedy business people, which is which is something that seems to bleed into uh, a lot of conversations when we're talking about could be grocery stores or whatever else greed. But but I, I would like to rewind that conversation back, and for everybody just to kind of try and be as civilized and 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 fair and 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 as possible. Now I would just roll it back to gratitude, and I talked about this a little bit last week, but. You know, when Jerry Earl from NAEP or Yvette Coffey from the Registered Nurses or Sherry Hillier from QP or Dr. Chris Luscombe from NLMA or Gordon Piercy from the Allied Health Professionals or whomever else gets on the radio or on, and, and starts speaking about their members, what is always lost is the gratitude for the taxpayers, their families. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean is that, like, for example... We're born, and healthcare looks after us. Then we go, and we have education that's paid for by the taxpayers. And then, and then they go go to post secondary of some sort, and that's very heavily subsidized by the taxpayers. And then they have job security that is unimaginable during COVID, as we all experienced. It didn't matter whether you know someone was at home or working or not working. They had 100% job security. And. You know, the 15 long weekends and and the benefits and the knowledge that they're going to receive 70% of their best five years if they work 30 years. And that a lot of times, a lot of the challenge right now we're faced with is the fact that a lot of people are retiring at 55 or 58, depending on what their different agreements state, and that that is driving it. And the fact that a lot of the sick leave benefits um, also lead for more, to more absenteeism and also the fact that in the case of many health professionals, they can manipulate their overtime so they can call in sick one day and then their coworkers get overtime and then they'll just work on the following day when that's not their normal schedule time, then they'll get overtime. And, and, if you were to, and a lot of people say, you know, they get all this overtime, but if you were to all of a sudden say to all the different public servants – that there's going to be no more overtime. We're going to hire enough people so you don't get overtime. Or we're going to change the nurses' schedules so that they're eight hours, so that they're not having to work these long, arduous. But what does that have to do with anybody insinuating that there's a level of greed amongst corporate North America? I'd like to draw a straight line between the fact that it seems like we, we, can, we can publicly say how greedy business people are. And there's a lot of people who are in business, very high percentage of businesses in this country, in this province, are just teetering on absolute bankruptcy. And that's not bankruptcy where you go declare it and you write off and, you know, you, you just start all over again like a lot of private individuals would be. That's bankruptcy where you've borrowed money from your friends, your family. You have no retirement. You have nothing. There's not a pension waiting for you when you declare bankruptcy at the end of that process. Like, you know, and then and – then, but it's okay for – healthcare professionals and their organizations 
to demand more money because magically money is going to solve the problem when, in fact, everybody, when they reflect upon it, the more we pay people once they get to a certain point, the less they need to work. The earlier they're going to take, they're going to take the retirement because they're able to have so many resources. And you allude to it when you talk about it. And it's not about you or about anybody else, but somehow we have to get back to the fact that greed and lack of people not realizing their place in society is ultimately causing society to collapse. But I think they're two different conversations, to be honest with you. I mean, and we all make choices about how we'd like to live our lives, how we'd like to be employed, self-employed or otherwise. And when people talk about greed, there's some big... Top of the uh, top of the page uh, issues that I think are unavoidable. So it's not necessarily about seven dollar or two liter chocolate milk, but the issues regarding greed. And for instance, what I pay at the pumps, and a five hundred dollar EpiPen, and unaffordable insulin, and things like that, which really do lead the league in conversations surrounding greed. So it's unavoidable in human nature because emotion plays a role in how we evaluate and adjudicate where profit leads to gouging, leads to greed, and unnecessary. So so when we have those things as part of society and part of the things that people that we know, I know, you know, have to deal with, whether it be in Canada or the United States, you know, the developed first world, the capitalist driven countries, the level of greed is very real. And to not be uh, able to acknowledge it really doesn't help. Capitalism is a good structure of economical growth, but it has run amok. It simply has. Now, are people working in the public sector through collective bargaining? Uh, are they doing better than many people who are on the outside looking in, trying to keep a business above uh, their head above water? Absolutely. Also undeniable. But the concept of greed is different on both sides. It just is. Some things we're talking about necessity of life. Sometimes we're talking about how many sick days I get. So they're kind of different conversations, aren't they? Well, sure, except for the fact that I would say that most people in Newfoundland and Labrador aren't on the verge of starvation. However, everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador are one second away from needing health care. And if you look around this province, it's sacrosanct to say that travel nurses are greedy or the GP who has decided to go work for TELUS Health or, or some other organization, that they would be considered greedy. But nobody wants to say that out loud. Or the nurse who wants to be casual because she wants to have that, he or she wants to have their choice that that's not greed. I mean, I mean, it's like how much, and I'm not trying to defend business people. What I'm trying to do is expand the conversation. I mean, it's way more, as society collapses, which is what you're witnessing, I mean, everybody says, well, the feds, if they gave us more money, well, that's our money. We're going to have to pay more taxes or borrow more money, which ultimately down the road means lower standard of living. Like, this is a death spiral. Well, we're looking at a death spiral, and, and the people who who have the most, I guess, who have the, 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 the best of, of the world in that they, their life has so much meaning. When, if you go to work and you save lives or you contribute to the betterment of society, like that is ultimately, it doesn't matter how much money you make, although you might argue it does. Really, like job satisfaction, even you know, even when it's hard, is is life's meaning. Now, somehow we make we allow the, the public conversation to be about um, how much money these people make. Just pay them more money. It's going to fix the problem. With that. I know you keep saying this, funding, giving everybody more money. Right now, right now we have a broken system, but the system is broken partially because we're so unhealthy and we're older and all that stuff. Nobody wants to say it out loud either. Like, you know, guys, look after your own health. No, none of these professionals come on and say, listen, if everybody just changed their lifestyles, 
you would take the stress off us. But these things are all related. And I just like I just when I hear a leader of a community call business people greedy. I'm like, you know, do you realize that's who pays the bills in this province, in this country, in the world? Like, that's it's where also the, money the public comes sector from. employees that pay bills too, right? I mean, that's what I think kind of sometimes also gets lost in this. And I'm not defending one contractor or another. And I think there's been uh, a very generous contractual landscape for many public sector workers in the country. And so many have now new jobs, especially with the federal public sector uh, over the last. Uh, 18, 24 months. So I, I get the point. But public sector workers are also people paying taxes, paying for services, as much as anybody else working in the private sector, of which I do work in. So anyway. No, but the money the money starts. And again, this is not one better than the other. It's not one versus the other. But when the median Newfoundlander makes $32,000 and the median public sector worker makes $78,000, and ultimately the public sector worker is going to check out at 55 or 58 years old, France is moving their retirement from 62 to 64. United States is going to 70, that the conversation about retirement is not being had? Well, it is. You know, I mean, the federal government well, talking about moving public. the age of eligibility for different pensions from 65 well up to 67. So the conversation is actually happening. Not uh, happening in the public sector, though. I mean, you know, that would just be suicidal for any politician to stay out loud. I mean, we got a, half the reason we have this problem is everybody's retiring at 55 at the prime of their life when they have the most skills, the most wisdom. They're not distracted anymore by their children because most likely they've raised them if they've had them. They now own their homes. That's not true either, though, Tom. People are working longer than ever. Ever. In the public sector? People are working longer than ever in North America. Ever in recorded history. Working longer than ever before. And median income around 32,000. You say that not everyone's teetering on, uh, on hunger? Well, I would suggest that's also incorrect. I mean, if, I, if I'm having, you know, considerations of flyers and Chris Donovan's uh, flyer Twitter account, then if I'm doing it, then people who are making the median average income of $32,000 teetering on, on the verge of hunger, I would say is a very much the reality for a ton of families in this province. A ton. As much as it might be interaction with healthcare tomorrow, it's also interaction with less than a full complement of groceries coming home. Absolutely, there's a lot of people suffering. That is not my point. But my point is that when we talk about greed and we put the we put the the onus on business people, I mean, it, it, we're just turning against each other. And that's not my not my role here is to turn anybody against anybody. But we we need to look at the bigger picture challenges that we're facing and not be afraid. Nothing needs nothing is taboo to say out loud. But when when the general public believes that the secret is just to pay people more money. They need to realize it. If you pay people more money, they will work less. They will retire earlier, and that's just a fact. So I don't know how, you, how we get past that, you know, because we can't afford to compete with B.C. and Ontario if it becomes a – or Alberta, if it becomes like a who's got the most money. And they'll eat up every one of our medical professionals. So somehow we've got to figure out a way to make it more about service and about meaning in the community and, and take the greed out of it, because like, ultimately the greed is pervasive. And quality of life is a great buzzword, but we're working way less than we used to work, you know, 100 years ago, 70 years ago, 50 years ago, and and our productivity is going down, and by default, our standard of living is going down. But it seems to be that people in the private sector, 
or small business owners or bit or business owner in general like we're the bad guys and uh i don't think I just, people paint small business owners as the bad guys i just do not hear that that's not the you, sentiment i hear says business. If, if you're running the empire group you're not a small business if you're running a large pharmaceutical company you're not a small business if you're running an oil company and or a gas refinery you're not small business those are the 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 sort of entities that people take aim at not people operating like you do tom not people who are operating the uh the tony the taylor shops that's not where the conversation is at all it might be that in your ears but it's not in mind when people talk greed they talk about the fortune 500 the muckety mucks the executives with the level of uh, bonuses that they get those are the things that people point to with greed it's not that uh, mom and dad's pop shop down on water street are the greedy bastards that's not how people talk certainly not how i hear them talk well Re- mayor, mayor rita pennell said yesterday on your show <clears throat> that mr fewer was greedy a straight line to a small business owner in this province who employs a lot of people, and I'm sure gets a lot has a lot of sleepless nights as he runs a seven day, 24 hour. There's no there's no gratitude there. There's no recognition there. And I'm not saying he's a good or a bad person. I don't know the man. However, what people say on this radio, especially when there are people in authority, like a mayor, needs to be called to account. And when Paul Din says out loud, "Freedom 55," like Freedom 55 for who? For him, maybe. But, All I, mean, I know I just, is it won't be for me, but I am late to, for the break, extremely late, Tom. Appreciate the okay. time. Take care, everyone. You Take too. Care. Bye-bye. Break time. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Ray, you're on the air. How you doing, buddy? Doing okay. How you doing? I listen to you. I'm a first-time caller of your program. I listen to different things you're talking about this morning. One's with Ammons, dear. We all need Ammons. This, if you have an accident or someone has a heart attack, you need to call Ammons. You need Ammons 24-7. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you never know when you, you might need it or I might need it or what time of the day it's going to be. And the other one is uh, you're, you're talking about people that, uh, that, that everything is going to cost a living uh, some of should go back when we grew up in older days, start planting some potatoes and carrots and that and living off the land. I think there was a conversation to be had there, Ray. I try to spread it around when we talk about access to food and food security, whether it be more and more of these hydroponic greenhouses or more and more people able to backyard farm or to homestead or more community gardens or the government putting more crown land forward for agricultural purposes. I think they all these different areas play a role in us having more and more self-sufficiency. Absolutely. Yep. But the, the main reason I'm calling you today is to talk about, I'm from an area where there's a lot of people grew up in the fisheries. Okay. Like, uh, I know I have a driver's license. If, I, if my driver's license expires, I go up two months later and pay for my driver's license and get them back. I wonder who got the authority to, uh, if a fisherman is late, renew his officer license or a ground fish license or a crab license or scallop license. If he's two weeks late, like I know different people in our community out in the Bay of Islands that if they were a week late on their license that they want back, their license was taken. We passed that law, wouldn't it? I know, I know my father lost his license because of that, that he was out probably, I don't know what happened to him. I know another friend of mine was had to go to Alberta to go to work because the fishing wasn't good and when he come back. 
the people that are supposed to renew his license never got him. Never renew his license from Lost everything. Just a couple of questions that I don't know the answer to, so I'm looking for information. How long is a fishing license good for, or does it change per species? Like, if I have a crab license, when do I have to renew it? I'll tell you, I'll tell you renew your license every year. Okay, that's what I thought. I was just confirming before I went any further. So, if I renew my license every year, so, like, for instance, when my driver's license expires, I don't get in any trouble for it until I'm caught with an expired driver's license. So, I know I have to pay possibly a ticket if I'm caught like that, but then I can just automatically renew my license, no big complications. So, if I miss the date right there and then, so let's Let's just say, for instance, my license renewal is January 25th tomorrow, and I don't do it tomorrow. That means I automatically lose it? No, you don't lose it. This is the only license that I could only think of. Like, if you got an alcohol license, a liquor license, if you got a doctor's license, this is the only license that I know that is, is this the same thing in Nova Scotia? Like, if I'm a fisherman and I go fishing and I don't renew my license and like, do, do they be out there checking these guys? That Do the fishery officers be on the water saying, could I see your license, see if you renew them? I don't know how much it would be done on, on the water, but I'm yeah. sure plenty of it happens at the wharf. Yeah, and it happens at the wharf, but like I said, if if, if you're late, re, if you're late renewing, they could take them from you. They're taking your livelihood now. They're taking your livelihood from you. You got no more rights to fish on the water whatsoever, because I know now that all these guys don't want to fish on the water. That got an option to sell their license. Who who pays for that license when he takes it? I don't know. Like who buys the license from the fisheries? Uh, who, buys, who buys the fisheries? Uh, if, if a ground fisherman wants us to sell these license, do we sell them back to the government? I don't think I have an answer for that, to be honest. So I know there's complications when you want to transfer your small enterprise, say, down to your son when you're going to give it up or what have you, or your daughter. But I don't know about, so an expired license, does that just not revert to DFO and then goes back out to be applied for and purchased? Is, isn't is that how that would work? Well, I hope someone's listening to me could uh, answer some of my questions, to be honest with you, because uh, if, if you're uh, a week late uh, renewing your license and you don't renew them and then you goes up a week late and you say, no, you can't renew them because you're a week late, you lose them. Yeah, okay. Let, let me do some follow-up so I can get some distinct timelines to, so that I have a better understanding of it. So the next time I talk about it, I actually know what I'm talking about. So let me do that much, Ray. Anything else you want to say this morning? No, my buddy. I appreciate the time. Stay tuned because I'm going to try to figure that out. Now there's a can of worms you're going to open there now. I got no problem with that. Like I say, is, is that the federal government's rule or is the provincial government's rule? I would imagine in the world of licensing, that's the federal government. But I'm going to get all the information I can. I guarantee you there's someone uh, listening at the FFAW this morning. So if they can send me a little Q&A sheet, I'd be happy to uh, try to absorb that info. And I appreciate the call this morning, Ray. Let me see what I can find out. Have a good day, sir. You too. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Let's take a break. Uh, A couple of good calls here in the queue. We're going to talk about the Bill 24. That was passed. That's, of course, uh, putting the essential services label on the private sector offering. That is Fewer's Ambulance Service. And then we're going to be speaking with Dr. Janice Adu. She's the president of the Pharmacists Association of Newfoundland and Labrador about what. We'll find out. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the NDP member elected in and serving the folks of the Torngat Mountains. That's Layla Evans. Layla, you're on the air. Uh, thank you, Patty. I'm just calling to talk a little bit about uh, Bill 21 that was introduced yesterday and just to sort of explain our side of it. Um, for us, Patty, like this legislation, you know, the designation of essential services in um, for, for ambulance uh, operators, um, if it was if it would have been brought in sooner, it would have prevented this crisis that occurred on top of the healthcare crisis. And what I mean is, there was ample opportunity to to bring in legislation. So why did they wait until there was a legal strike going on? Because what's really uncomfortable for us is bringing in this legislation while while the union was was actually in a legal strike position and striking. It serves as um, back-to-work legislation. Now, even the union wasn't disagreeing with the essential service part, you know, like the the requirement of essential services, and there was an opportunity to do that. Uh, You know, back in the spring, uh, they were looking at taking a a strike vote, and before they could do that, you know, the the, the minister came in and and actually um, sort of interfered. He appointed a um, a conciliation uh, officer, um, you know, and, and the the local union, 855, said to the media that it was like a slap to them because it was the morning they were actually intending to have a vote. And so from that time on, up until November, you know, they were they were negotiating. And then in November, they, the local 855 was in a legal strike position and they informed the government. Now, the government could have brought in the legislation. And that would have actually prevented this from happening while they were in while they were on strike, right? So in November, why didn't they bring in that legislation? We, the MHAs and the unions, could have been consulted. We could have reviewed the legislation. We could have debated it. Everyone could have felt comfortable with it. But Patty, what I want to draw the public's attention to is in November the house was sitting. All we all we would have done was extended the house for a few more days or a, a week or so. But at the time, we were actually debating the legislation for the provincial. Sorry, sorry about that. It's, this is just a little bit uh, a little bit much. Um, the, provin- the provincial health authorities. And what we were saying then is that they introduced this legislation uh, for the provincial health authorities with no consultation of the unions. They brought it in, didn't give us a time or a chance to review it, expected us then to de- debate it, you know, e- intense legislation that's going to impact the future of health care. And the parallels to that and this new legislation that they're doing is exactly the same. They didn't consult with the unions on this legislation or either. They basically brought it in, very little time for us to consult, less than 24 hours. The unions didn't even have a chance to look at it, and then we were debating it in the House. <laughs> so the, the parallels are too great. Like we got to stop doing legislation that impacts the future of the province uh, like that. And the same thing with the gender pay equity. No consultation, uh, uh, just basically blindsiding uh, us with And this is important. So with the NDP, I want to say we support the designation of essential services, especially for health care. That's very, very important. But it should have been avoided. They shouldn't have waited until there was actually a strike because then it's all under this disguise of, oh, we're in a crisis. Somebody could die. 
Right. Just a couple of things I'll get you to react to. Uh, you know, before we get into the gender pay equity or, uh, legislation and what have you, if consultation on this particular issue, just Bill 24, the essential services labeled for uh, Fewer's contract, Fewer's uh, ambulance operators. If you're going to consult with the union, do you have to consult with the employer as well? Yes. Yes, you, that's the whole point of bringing legislation is to get the sides of it. Like, say, for example, the gender pay equity. There was no consult, consultation with the unions, but also with the businesses that were going to be impacted. The same thing with this provincial health authority, the, the local stakeholders, everyone that's going to be impacted. It's like they pops up with this legislation, puts it out in front of us before we even got time to digest it, and the unions got time to look at it, and the, the businesses have time to look at it and, and voice their concerns. It's passed. And then we have to deal with the repercussions of it. It's, it's a bad way to govern. And with us, like, you know, because we were being tainted as the bad, the, the bad, I guess, the bad party here. But at the end of the day, we were just trying to make sure that there was not going to be things that came up that, you know, um, uh, workers and, and unions and businesses would have to deal with that wasn't anticipated. Right. I mean, legislation should be thought through. It should be uh, consulted on. It, sh- it should be tweaked to make sure that that gaps, pit- pitfalls that's going to interfere with with uh, with, uh, you know, the, the health of the province is, is addressed. And, and, you know, like there's going to be a history of that. And, 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 and we're going to remind them of that because, like, we, we could have we could have seen this. And why wait until they were in a strike position? Because the government could rush this through and say, "Oh, we're in a healthcare crisis. We can't have the uh, we can't have the paramedics out on strike." But you know something? The paramedics, the unions, they were calling for um, this legislation long before this, and and they, there was an opportunity to to do it right. And now, you know, we're still we're still reading through it. We're still trying to you know digest it. And it's the same thing with the unions. It's not just this Teamsters Local um, 855 that's going to be impacted. All the other unions out there, QP is impacted by this, NAEP is impacted by this, and they're just trying to, 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 to get a handle on, on, on what was put forward. You know? and, and they'll have time to figure it out. Just quickly, though, Leila, so on this one, I think it's not just November that something should have been done. We've been talking about the possibility on this front for years. Well, certainly we yes. have on this program for years. So yes. this could have been yes. done well in advance. I think things changed last Friday a little bit. Because well, when the local... But Patty, let's just go well, back well, They did. Uh, I don't know if you would like to react to it, but it, things no, did change. Like, what, 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 what I, the reason why I, I talked about in in the, in spring was when uh, because uh, you know Minister Davis appointed this conciliation officer in, in his press release he called it a board you know and and there was there was a lot of merit in there so governor the the, the government had somebody in there that was working with the union and, and with the companies you know. And one of the things that, like, the union tried to stress is that the company that they were negotiating with, because it's public, uh, private, was they, they weren't they weren't coming they weren't coming to the table, and and this strike, like, no paramedic, you know, wants to go on strike, you know, because a part of the reason why they're paramedic is because they they want to serve, they want to help people, and they're very very uncomfortable, and and and, and you did have. Um, you didn't have a good voice on there earlier talking about the concerns and, and, and putting forward um, um, uh, what they were saying. But, like, you know, you had Don just earlier, right? And, um, like, for, for us, 
is I, I think this was very disrespectful to all unions, and I think it was disrespectful to, to the entire province, the, the way this was done. Right. you got to get legislation right. I mean, it's not that long ago we expropriated a paper mill because we didn't take time to devour and digest and debate uh, comprehensive legislation. All I was going to say about what changed last Friday is on Thursday that looked like the job action was not going to see ambulances taken off the road until there was an action taken by Mr. Fuhrer, which led the Teamsters to say, that's it. Based on his behavior, words. Going on strike, we're withdrawing our services. That's the only point I was making. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Leila. Anything else very quickly before I have to go? Well, I, I think that the province needs to wake up and start noticing the way that this government is bringing legislation, you know, like regarding health care, regarding uh, essential services, uh, regarding gender pay equity. These are huge in- issues, and there's no consultation with any stakeholders, and it's rushed in, you know, within 24 hours, we're expected to debate it. And, and uh, like I said, it, it, it's bad legislation, and, and I think that the, the province needs to recognize that and uh, for us as the NDP, we we weren't actually against the legislation. We were against having this legislation introduced now when it was actually basically uh, um, legislating them back to work, and and that's unacceptable. And that goes against uh, the Canadian Charter of free, uh, Rights and Freedoms of the worker. They do have a right to legally strike. And this legislation, really, just because of the, the way they introduced it and when they introduced it and they failed to address the problems leading up to the strike, uh, you know, it just became uh, a double-edged sword that really, really is going to impact, uh, I think, our future of, of, of union negotiations. Thank you, Leila. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And, you know, and all interestingly enough, the union's in favor of the legislation. Very quickly, that whole story about the fake nurse and the fake nursing credentials, the RNC have made an arrest involving that lady, Lisa Driscoll, who had indeed not only faked her credentials once, but repeatedly uh, over the course of time here in the province. She's uh, going to be held uh, to appear in court on the following charges. Fraud times three, breach of probation times three, identity t- theft times two, perjury times one, breach of the Licensed Practical Nurses Act, breach of the Registered Nurses Act, and apparently she did some of this work while she was already on probation for other issues. I'll try to figure that out during the break. When we come back, the president of the panel, that's the Pharmacist Association, Newfoundland and Labrador, Dr. Janice Adu is in the queue, and then it's you. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to pharmacist and president of the Pharmacist Association of the province. That's Janice Adu. Good morning, Janice. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thank you. How about you? Oh, pretty good. Thank you. What's on your mind this morning, Janice? So um, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paul Din was on and he was talking about recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals in the province. And I basically just wanted to come on and give a little update on, um, I guess, where things are with pharmacy and how we kind of feel there could be some solutions for recruitment and retention of pharmacists in Newfoundland and Labrador as well. Okay, let's go. Okay. So uh, the first thing that, um, you know, I wanted to point out is that a few years ago, like when I graduated in 2015, um, we were like leading the country in terms of expanded scope. So we had a lot of ability to do a lot of things that were really not um, other provinces weren't allowed to do by legislation. Not that they weren't trained, but legislation was preventing these things. So in that short period of time, just seven and a half years, we've actually fallen behind a lot of things in, 
in the province, in our province compared to other provinces in Canada. So there's a lot of stuff that other provinces are allowed to do, and we're kind of lagging behind, um, which definitely becomes a recruitment and retention issue because, you know, now we have a doctor of pharmacy program and we're, we're having, um, you know, some professionals go back and we've got experienced professionals that have been working for 30 years that are seeing other colleagues in other provinces that are able to do more to help their patients. And that's a retention issue. You know, like when people want to go and use their training, they're looking at other provinces and saying, I can do what I'm trained to do if I just moved to Alberta or even if I just moved to Nova Scotia. So, um, you know, that becomes a recruitment retention issue for us for sure. Give us some examples because we talk about maximizing the scope of practice all the time. And for different disciplines, it includes a variety of different things, you know, whether it be province to province or country to country. So what can a pharmacist not do here that he or she can do elsewhere in the country? So we're seeing some work. I do want to put that out there. There's some some progress is happening. It's happening a little bit slower than what we wanted. Um, but, you know, like in other provinces, you can go to the pharmacy and have your prescription renewed at no charge. So it's universally covered regardless of the type of drug coverage that you have. As long as you have a health care card for that province, you can go into the, to the pharmacy. The pharmacist can do an assessment and extend a prescription. In Newfoundland and Labrador, there's a cost associated with that unless you're on our Newfoundland and Labrador drug card program. So that leads people, you know, going into emergency rooms or paying out of pocket when in other provinces, that's just something that they can do. And, you know, as a pharmacist, you're not put in a position to, to you know, have to charge someone for a service. Um, and you can just do your job and do your assessment without having to talk about the money piece, which, you know, we know is a barrier. The cost of living is crazy and people don't have a lot of spare income. So they're choosing to spend you know, eight, 10 hours or longer in an emergency room because they can't afford, you know, the extra $20 that it might be to get a prescription extension. So that's the one big one that, you know, we're spending that money in healthcare somewhere and it's much more expensive to do it in an emergency room than it would be to do in a community pharmacy. Yeah, we're double dipping. We're taking up uh, space at a clinic or an appointment at a clinic, unnecessarily so. Are there certain types of uh, prescriptions that cannot be refilled without going back to a doctor, though? I would be thinking of things like, for instance, opioids. Yeah, so it definitely depends on a case-by-case basis. So if someone is on a chronic opioid medication, you know, uh, it might be appropriate to give an extension until they can see their doctor. Um, but it's not something that we'd be able to renew over and over and over again, um, especially given the current legislation. Um, but there's always, you know, you, you never, none of this stuff is to cut any healthcare provider out. So it's always important that we're working as a team. So, you know, we might extend it, but it's never meant to be that you don't have to see a physician ever again. And that's opioids or that's blood pressure medication. You know, your physician is an important part of your team and they need to see you as well and you know order some of the blood work and you know have their own assessment make sure there's nothing else going on so it's not meant to be that you can just have your prescriptions renewed at a pharmacy forever you know it's meant to be you know people who don't have a family doctor or people who are stuck between appointments uh trying to keep them out of acute care basically and um and still manage their health care as much as we can through the community oh that all makes sense i mean because first thing inside of all of your respective oaths is to do no harm so no one's 
trying to, you know, lay down their territory and end up doing a patient some harm. So that's right. a big one. And I know it to be true. And I'd like, for instance, I follow along Cara O'Keefe, the Bell Island pharmacist, and she paints these pictures all the time, which I think makes a lot of sense. Because if mm-hmm. we're looking for efficiencies, if I'm trained and accredited to do one thing or another, why am I not allowed to do it? And if it all boils back to the strength in numbers and or clout of one representative organization, whether it be the NLMA or the Registered Nurses Union or a panel or anybody else, then we're just allowing loud voices with big clout to set policy as opposed to what's best for the patient, what's best for the bottom line, financially or otherwise, for the government and the citizens. And that doesn't seem to be what we're doing. Hopefully some of that will be addressed in years to come outside of renewing renewing prescriptions. You know, whether it be administration of vaccines and otherwise, you know, I know there's been lots of contentious negotiations on those types of fronts. What else should you be doing inside your shops versus me having to get back in the queue, whether it be, in my, for my case, uh, my collaborative care clinic on Monday Pond Road? Right. So um, what we... You know, we can currently prescribe for a lot of minor ailments like cold sores, acne, like mild acne, mild eczema. The issue with a lot of that stuff is, again, it's not funded. So that's a huge piece where we're falling behind. So um, pharmacists are frustrated by not being able to, you know, provide the services to their patient based on a cost barrier. They're going to other places that, you know, that's not an issue. Um so we could be taking some of these minor things that are ending up in emergency rooms or people paying out of pocket or doing virtual care for that we could actually see the patient and, um, you know, provide the same care. Uh, but unfortunately, like I said, there is a cost for it, whereas if it, some of this was universally funded, then some of the bigger issues, like, for example, we don't have the ability to currently prescribe for urinary tract infections. Um, but that's a big one that keeps people going to emergency room because if you've ever had a urinary tract infection, you know you can't wait not, you know a week to see your doctor. It's very uncomfortable and very, very, very um, debilitating for a lot of people once they get one. So that's something that can be done in other provinces that currently is not um, happening in Newfoundland and Labrador. So people are going to emergency rooms. Do you feel these moves are being heard by government and licensing bodies? Because it's fine for you and other representatives at uh, different organizations to make the point. But do you think that the government is listening? Because there's a political victory here if all of a sudden there are better outcomes. And as opposed to simply throwing money at health care, which if anyone thinks that's the answer, then they're kidding themselves. Because we spend a lot of money on health care. We're not getting the desired positive health care outcomes, nor are we reducing wait times, nor are we putting more and more people in front of a family doctor or a pharmacist or an LPN or an MP, whoever the appropriate professional is. So are you being heard, do you think? I would say we're being heard more now than we have been previously. Um, you know, we had a really good meeting back in the fall uh, where we talked about a lot of these issues with the minister and felt that he was quite receptive. The change is happening a little slower um, than than we would like, um, especially given, you know, the the state of our health care. But, I mean, I do feel that we are being heard. Um, and, you know, pharmacy professionals want to see these things happening too. So it's nice. And the reason I wanted to come on today is as well to let pharmacy professionals know, you know, we're still working on all this stuff and hopefully have a little bit of a um, light at the end of the tunnel for people in terms of, you know, seeing that they're, being heard by government and, and actually might see some changes, hopefully, you know, we don't know, but um, I do feel they've been more receptive uh, than in the past, for sure. That's the good news. Appreciate the time this morning. Janice, any final thoughts? Yeah, there's just one other issue that I do want to bring up that pertains to our hospital pharmacists. 
Um, so currently there is a um, labor market differential that our hospital pharmacists have, but unfortunately right now it's not pensionable and it's not permanent. So um, that's been an issue that we've been advocating to government and trying to get updates on for our hospital pharmacists, because as you know, you can't run a hospital without pharmacists as well. They're not just in community, they're in our hospital system as well. So that's another recruitment retention issue um, with our pharmacists is working in that clinical area in hospital pharmacies. It's much more appealing in other provinces where the wage and benefits are a little bit better than what we're currently seeing in Newfoundland, or at least haven't had a commitment to maintain them where they are at the very least. Um, and we haven't seen a whole lot of commitment in terms of continuing that market differential. So I wanted to throw that out there as well. I appreciate the time this morning, Janice. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. That's pharmacist and president of the Pharmacist Association, Janice Adu. Let's take a break. But very quickly, want to remind the unit owners uh, that live in units that are operated by Brookfield Estates Condominium Corporation, there is a very special emergency meeting tonight for all unit owners. Uh, it's taking place in person at the Shrine Club on 530 Topsail Road. begins at 7 p.m. You can also join it by Zoom. I have a link if you're so interested. And they're voting on two different options of a special assessment to deal with an increase in insurance premiums. So that's tonight, 7 p.m. at the Shrine Club on Topsail Road or via Zoom. Let's take a break. When we come back, we got a better understanding now of what Equinor thinks the future will look like if they give a business sanction to Beta Nord. And that's in regards to where the jobs are going to be done and by who. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five, Sigmund to the executive director at Trades NL. That's Darren King. Darren, you're on the air. Hi, Darren. Good morning. Good morning to you. I just now heard your voice. Welcome back to the show. Yes, thanks. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. So, you know, before we get to exactly the position that Equinor and the province have taken at this time, sometimes, Darren, I guess when we live and we work in certain industries, you become very comfortable with acronyms and you get comfortable with some of the very specific industry references. And maybe people listening don't necessarily know what we're talking about. So I've asked this question before, but for the benefit of the listeners, when we talk about what we can and cannot do here realistically, we say, well, we can do the top sides. What does that mean? So when, when we, Patty, let me use this analogy for you. This is one we've used with the public generally. Um, when we talk about top sides, I describe it as Lego blocks. All of the pieces that go on the top side of the vessel, there's living quarters, there's flare deck and a hella boom, uh, a hella deck, and there's all kinds of other processing modules. They're like little pieces of Lego blocks that get constructed independent of each other. And when we use the term hookup or mating, that's when all of the Lego blocks are put together on the deck of the vessel to finish it. And then the, the commissioning is where it's all tested out before it goes to sea. So if you could use a Lego block analogy, that's how I would describe it. There's, there's little pieces that get made independent of each other, and then they're all assembled on the top of the vessel. Fair ball. I mean, I, I know that's fairly fundamental stuff, but I guarantee there's people listening that they don't know what that means. So I just had to ask it. Okay, what is Equinor's position today on who and where j these jobs get done? So our understanding today, as of today, is, is that there's been no, no agreement on a new benefits agreement. The discussions are ongoing with, uh, with government, and uh, you know, the minister can speak more clearly to detail on that. But uh, suffice it to say, our understanding is that Equinor's proposal is to construct 100% of the FPSO outside of the country, uh, and the only work that would come here would be subsea fabrication work. 
and of course there's there's a lot of good in there we have a lot of experience in that realm but we also have lots of experience and when we talk about that industry we talk about mo- uh, momentum a lot right so continued exploration keeps the momentum going consequently there might be more and more action offshore onshore and maybe more fields come to production same thing with the trades if you don't keep momentum going it comes with a variety of complicating factors including you don't have a well up-to-date modernized workforce ready to go you may have people leave so there's a couple of things that come with a break in momentum yeah you know 100 percent. there's no you know there's no question about that um i mean th- this is this is just as much about the future of construction and skilled trades in the province as it is about the equinor project because if we lose all of the work on this project um first of all it's a huge opportunity lost to the trades to continue to hone their skills and to maintain the world-class uh, uh, trades women and men that we have here uh, secondly it likely will eradicate uh, a lot of people move them out of the trades into other areas and when the time comes to do future work on wind and hydrogen projects we're, we're essentially handing developers on a platter uh, the argument to say well we can't come to newfoundland and labrador because you don't have enough trades persons around any longer so you know it's as much about the future as is, as it is about the beta project for sure yeah i mean and that you know and it's not just the people who get those jobs and pay those taxes it's everything uh in the surrounding community where you have whether it be grocery stores or gas stations or whatever else where they're going to spend their money and the population base we can't see more and more people a doing the long distance commute or even worst case scenario moving period okay you've been at these tables when we talk about negotiations, it's the essence of give and take. If we get on one side, we give on another. So you get some jobs from or additional top sides work or what have you. It comes with some sort of downside, you know, provincially, big picture. So whether that be a reduction of royalties, tax breaks, uh, equity stake, something gives on the other side. How do you speak to that part of the equation? Because it is part of it. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, it's give and take, right? It, you know, it's a negotiation. There's no question about that. I mean, I, look, our position on this, Patty, is fairly clear. You know, we, we see it as a partnership. You know, the, the Betanor project is important to Betanor, excuse me, to Equinor, and it's important to the province. And it has to be a partnership that's mutually beneficial. Um, you know, on every single oil project that we've done in this province, we've all seen the companies made record profits. There's no question. There's not one project to date that we've done where there's been money lost. You know, that's just a fact. It's on record. You can find the the stats anywhere at all. So from our perspective, you know, we, we see that the province ought to have a right to demand jobs on the construction and development phase of the project and a share of the royalties once the project is uh, up and running. We also acknowledge that Equinor is the investor in this project and uh, and putting the time and energy in and taking the risk so there ought to be significant royalties for them when the project's up and running there's no there's no question about that but you know if i could use an example where we feel clearly it's wrong is the Terranova refit and i may have sent this to you before but you know the, the developers come to governments <clears throat> all the time they did it when i was there and they're doing it today i'm sure and they they plead a poor mouth um, and they'll they'll recognize that there's politics at play and they try and beat governments down for a political win and, um, and the, the Terranova is a really good example. The Terranova refit 
and I was part of the lobby with government to try and get that project back on track. I admit that, and, and I'm glad we did it because we need the project up and running. The reality was that government, with support of the province, invested hundreds of millions of dollars from the a combination of cut-in royalties and the oil and gas recovery fund to get that refit done so that the project will go back and be up and running. And the result is that the majority of the refit work, the construction jobs, the supply and service opportunities, Suncor took that to Spain. And in Q4 of 2022, Suncor recorded record profits for its shareholders. And our position and my position is clear that that's not a partnership. That's a win for Suncor and not a win for the province. We, and it's not a criticism of government. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that at all because we were all a part of it. But the reality is Suncor walked away with the win there and there was no partnership or no sharing of the risk. That work ought to have been done here. And, and we're taking the same position with Equinor. We're not suggesting Equinor shouldn't make money on this project. But we are suggesting that there has to be a benefit for us, for the province, in the upside of the construction and the development phase. And then whatever the royalty is on the tail end once it's operating, we get a piece of that. There's no question Equinor deserves the profits, but they don't deserve to take all the profits, including the construction, and taking it elsewhere. I appreciate the time uh, this morning, Darren. Very last question, hopefully quick response. Someone from Equinor say comes on this program right after the news and says, we can get it done for less money elsewhere. They have all of the capacity, whether it be for the hall, top sides, everything all in one shop. Uh, I can do it. I can get better work at less money if I bring it to South Korea. And your response is what? Uh, I would suggest they won't get better work. It might be less money, but I, I just refer you to the shop local campaign the Board of Trade did. I mean, nothing is cheaper in Newfoundland and Labrador, no matter what. But but living in our province comes at a cost. We know that. We own the resource, and we have a right to share in the benefit. It doesn't mean that they can go where, where things are cheaper. If they want to do work with our resource, they do it in our province. That's a cost of doing business there. Appreciate the time, Darren. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. That's Darren King. He's the executive director at Trades and L. When we come back, Mike wants to tell us about Starlink. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line three, Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, no, it is a good morning. No, this weather. Not fit for nothing. That's uh, rotten in town. Yeah. Uh... I got trouble with the starting the weekend. Uh, I've had starting now for a few months, so I found it way better than anything else I had before. But the weekend I started having trouble with it, and I started blaming it on the storm, but usually it was pretty good for the bad weather. But anyway, it's gone now a couple of days. I can't get in touch with anybody from Starlink. There's no phone numbers or nothing. I've got to send an email, but I can't send an email because the Internet is down. And I, all the people that are around me, i got four people around me that have Starlink, but they're all, they're, their cabins is all in, I'm in the cabin area. And I can't find anybody who, in the immediate area, that may be down also to find out if it's me or whether it's the, if i got trouble with my dictionary or whatever. And uh, I'm wondering if anybody is out there that has Starlink, if they got trouble, that they got no uh, no internet. Well, I, I don't know. It's the first I've heard of it. I haven't. Uh, I've never used the Starlink internet service. So, if anyone does uh, is experiencing these problems and has somewhere that they can point you for some tech support, we're happy to pass along the info. But I don't know off the top of my head, Mike. No, I'm wondering. Uh, now, I did call one of the news reporters uh, in the newsrooms. I'm not sure now which one it was. And apparently, they did have some complaints about it, and they were trying to find out about it, but. That's all I've heard about it, and 
So this is what I'm wondering about, whether I should go about, well, trying to get mine fixed or or uh, whatever, if it's the system, if the satellite's up there, well, I'm wasting my time going at my equipment or trying to find out what's wrong. But uh, it's that's one thing about the Starlink. It, it's fairly expensive. It's a $1,000 start-up. It's $160 a month. And, uh, you know, it's been pretty good. And I must say, it is way ahead of other systems that I had. But now with this, when you do get trouble with it, you've got problems. The problems of getting in touch with anybody. You've got to send messages and then wait a couple of days for people to get back to you. And uh, well, it's like everything is not even perfect in this world. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, regardless of what it is or where you bought it or who owns it or operates it, if you need tech support, it should be easier to come by than having to call me because I don't know. But I'll be yeah. happy to pass along any information we get. Yeah, I'm trying to now, trying to do everything, get in contact with somebody, and I can't do anything. This is why I'm wondering about there now. If there's somebody out there somewhere that can help me out or if there's other people out there who has the internet down with the with these people or whatever well let me know or just say something we will do that all right we'll let you, you know mike thanks you're welcome bye-bye Goodbye. all right let's keep rolling here let's go to line five jeff you're on the air uh good morning patty thanks for taking my call today pleasure uh, just following up on a earlier conversation you had with a caller, and I guess it had to do with, I guess, the issue of private sector workers versus public sector workers and how uh, very often, you know, public servants get painted with a brush and, um, uh, you know, uh, vilified to some extent. So, you know, if you look throughout society and history, you know, uh, group X, Y, or Z has often been subjected to prejudice or stereotypes in an effort to vilify them. And we've seen a lot of this, you know, we versus them type of things happening in society with some very significant negative impacts. And it's just, you know, I'm someone who has worked uh, in a public service type position for my career. And when I hear these, you know, broad statements and stereotypical um, you know, statements that pub- all public servants are greedy or they're lazy or they don't deserve what they have because it, it's who you know or whatever. I, I'd really like to challenge that uh, perspective. And if you substituted the term public servant for another group uh, and you said that they were greedy or lazy or whatever, it, it would be called out immediately. Now, there comes a point in every young person's life where they try to decide what type of career they're going to have. And they look at what's their interest. You want to look at what type of a job may have, you know, good job prospects or uh, what the pay is or, or benefits. And in my case, I had to leave the province because it was a, a poor work environment. And I ended up doing an advanced degree after university, a master's degree. And I, uh, you know, use student loans and my visa to supplement it. And after I volunteered and I worked in my field and then there was a publicly advertised job process that I applied for. In that process, I had to write an exam based on my knowledge of legislation, policy issues, management processes. I had to do a behavior-based interview where I had to give specific examples of times when I, uh, you know, met the essential criteria noted for the job process. 
So when someone, you know, goes out publicly and they dump all over public servants and, uh, you know, what what they have accomplished or what they get, uh, you know, everyone has an opportunity to apply for these uh, public uh, servant jobs, public sector jobs, and they require a great deal of effort and uh, knowledge and, and uh, time and effort put into uh uh, uh, achieving them and if someone is looking at a career that they want to do well why not uh, choose to try to get a job uh, that's high paying and has good benefits yeah, and well, has a, yeah okay. oh, go ahead well i mean that all makes sense but it's very much akin to you know comments that everyone in private business is just a greedy hoarder and can't be trusted same thing uh, can be said for just uh, labeling everyone in the public sector as lazy and overpaid i think both are equally unhelpful to be honest with you but i also think there's a couple of uh, instances or examples that i'm happy enough to use to point to the fact that there's an element of greed involved in everybody's needs and wants and petulance as a worker private or public it just is true i mean we might as well acknowledge the facts here so if i'm charging exorbitant amount of money for an EpiPen, then i probably have a greedy streak running through my shareholders and my board of directors and me as a leader if the same could be said for insulin or the same could be said for some particular grocery products then on the other side of the coin I just read a story this morning that the union representing the uh, employees at CRA are demanding 30% increase in wages. I mean, at some point, it's not unfair to say, you know, that's not only unprecedented, it doesn't make any sense, and it might indeed be an air of greed, because who is who's able to, outside of a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, able to look forward to a series of scheduled pay bumps that equals 30% this day and age in this economy, in this reality that we're dealing with? So I think it's both unhelpful to say everyone in business is greedy and everyone in the public sector is lazy and overpaid, because it's not true, number one, and it doesn't lead to any real conversations it's just mudslinging exercise yeah and i agree 100 percent, patty and you know if there's specific examples hey i'm uh, you know more than happy for someone to call out specific examples but uh, like you you know my main point is this broad brush stereotyping and everyone has a story and everyone has an opportunity if they're interested in undertaking a specific career to do the research and do the work, get the education and do what you can to uh, achieve your uh, quality of life that you are striving for. So the broad brush is, I think, uh, unhelpful as well. Absolutely. People will plot their future. They'll do what's required to uh, execute it and to make it to become a reality, whether it be in the private sector or the public sector, as an entrepreneur, as a worker bee, or as someone working at CRA looking for a 30% pay bump. It's all a very specific conversation where we can get down to brass tacks and understand what's actually happening versus some of the, I think this was your lead uh, statement, is when we get into the old, tired, stereotypical labels, then we're probably not advancing a conversation. We are, in essence, just stalling a perpetually stalled conversation. Good to have you on, Gio. Thank you very much. Take care. Uh, rugby dinner Friday? Uh, no, got to pass this time. We'll see you around, buddy. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, imagine waking up one morning and knowing that you just put pen to paper and now you are a professional athlete. Former star playing for the Gonzaga High School Vikings. And then on to the Seahawks. And then on to playing some uh, semi-pro ball in Peterborough, Ontario for the great team named the Electric City Football Club. And now making our way to Iceland. 
professional soccer player Holly O'Neill right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, it was cool enough to be playing some high school sports and the varsity clubs. Cool enough to get to play some actual varsity at Memorial University. Bit of semi-pro ball in Peterborough. But now, the home of the thunderclap. Iceland will be, Holly O'Neill will be plying her trade as a professional soccer player. Joining us on line number two is Holly O'Neill. Hi, Holly. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? We're doing okay. Congratulations. Thank you. So, I mean, right off the bat, uh, raised a couple of athletes, was a so-called athlete myself growing up, and just that potential and to, you know, dream the big dream of playing professionally. When this came to pass and you finally put your name on that contract, you know, just describe what it meant to you and how you felt. Uh, I mean, it meant a lot to me. It was always a long-term goal of mine, so... I'm very excited. Um, I try my best to stay level-headed about it because I still have other goals that I'm working towards within my career. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I'm very excited to go. I'm also very nervous to go, but more so because I've never traveled to another country by myself. (laughs) But, you know, it's uh, back to another island, and I heard it's uh, pretty similar. (laughs) Well, it is. I mean, Iceland looks like a very cool place to visit. And they kind of punch above their weight a little bit in international football as well. You know, good appearance at the Euros for the men there a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's a real hotbed of soccer. Um, what do you know about the style of play in Iceland and how it compares to your skill set and the way you play the game? Um, I mean, it's very European style. Um, I find uh, that was kind of the way I grew up for the most part, the way I was coached. I would say that my university coach, uh, that was more his style, you know, working out of the back, working through the midfield, um, hitting your nine or your wingers. Um, so that style I'm, I'm very used to, which uh, is exciting and <laughs> good for me. It would suck if uh, I hadn't have been taught those ways. <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, at, at some point, like, when we were growing up around here playing soccer, it was kind of slog ball. It wasn't moving mm-hmm. the ball through the midfield. It wasn't trying to have direct connects with your number nine. And for the number nine is basically the focus center striker, the goal scorer up front, is mm-hmm. a, you know, however people want to refer to that player. Uh, so that's the number nine. So I think it's all pretty terrific. How's your Icelandic? Can you pronounce the name of your new club? <laughs> I can't. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's not very good yet. Um, I'm going to do my best to try and learn a few words, but I, I have been told it's very challenging. I would think so. It sounds like a very, and this is not critical. It's a, gu- a very guttural language, so we're going to call it IBV, which playing Division One. It's an eight-team mm-hmm. league called the Pepsi Max League. And you talk about goals down the line. This is a stepping stone. I would imagine most female players here in this country, and I assume most male players. You know, you look at the Big Five league. So we've seen some big successes for Canadian women and Canadian men now getting to play in these leagues. Where's the prize? Where's your eye? Like, is it to play in England or to play in Portugal or in Spain? Like, where do you foresee when you close your eyes at night? Now you know a pro player, and this is a potential stepping stone league. Where do you see that goal manifest itself? What is it? I mean, ultimately, it's in the it's, um I do end up staying in Iceland. I'll, I'll be very, very happy because realistically, I've, I've met my um, ultimate goal. Um, however, my, my big dream goals after that would be to play for a team like Manchester United, who actually, um, the girl from the national team just signed their 
the other day um, or, or to crack the national team at the end of the day. I think that one's probably my next one. The Man United one's like top, top of the list. <laughs> I, I saw that, uh, you know, there's a couple of the the females that have been having such enormous success. And let's talk about that a little bit because I'm glad that you said Team Canada. You know, it's great to celebrate the fact that the men were back in the World Cup for the first time since 1986. But lost in that conversation is that the Canadian women have been having extraordinary success for a long time now, including being mm-hmm. Olympic gold medalists. So when you look up at those players, I mean, we can all talk about the Christine Sinclairs of the world. No, no, no man or woman has ever scored more professional or pardon me, more goals than Christine Sinclair. So who do you look up at? And that's who you want to be, not, you know, or to replicate who that player has been for the country. I mean, I, I'm a center striker, so Christine Sinclair would be my number one. But I think, um, honestly, the next one I'm looking at now that uh, I never should have overlooked would be Chloe Lacoste, because she was actually one who came through IBV, the same team that I'm going to in Iceland. And that's kind of where she made her name and ended up on the national team. And now she's playing in Portugal, and apparently there's talks about her moving over to Arsenal. So she'd be another one. Adriana Leon, I think, is the player that signed in Man U. I'm having a hard time racking my brain to come up with it. And the lady who was part of the commentary team uh, at the Men's World Cup. uh, Oh, my God. I'm coming up uh, dry trying to come up with her name. She's playing pro in England as well. So there are pathways that have been well developed for you to follow. So when do you leave for Iceland? (laughs) Well, that's actually what I'm... um trying to figure out right now I'm in talks with uh, the manager of the club over there and uh, it looks like it could be as early as February 1st but ideally sometime in the first week of uh, February well it's all terribly exciting and uh, I was about to say and I think I will say it anyway I think you know it's important when we see people from this province have big success on the big stage it gives the young athletes something to think about someone who they can follow and so you're going to be that next name and a long name of uh, athletes who have been doing great stuff so hearty congratulations I wish you nothing but the best of success when you go play for your new Icelandic based professional soccer team good on you Holly thank you so much take good care you too. All Thanks right. for having me on. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Here we go. Holly O'Neill playing some pro. <laughs> Nothing like it. <clears throat> Going to Iceland. Good league too. Well recognized throughout Europe. And there's been lots of examples of players graduating from some of those Icelandic teams, both men and women, and getting to play in what they call the bigger leagues. Because there are, you know, on the men's side in particular, they refer to the big five leagues. Let's see if I can get that right now. So, of course, the Premier League. And then it's the, the German, the Spanish, and the Portuguese leagues would be in the big five. Who would be the number five league? I suppose one of the South American uh, stops. But anyway, good for Holly O'Neill. And in the world, you know, sometimes when I talk about some sports off the top, you know, as someone who's been around sports and for uh, a coach of many young athletes and my boys were athletes, it makes a big deal and a big difference when you can look at somebody, not just like the Christine Sinclairs of the world, right? Not just the Austin Matthews of the world, but when you can bring it back to, well, there's Holly O'Neill getting to play some pro, and there's Newhook and Mercer and others getting to play some pro, and there's Brad Cushu knocking them dead on the big stage. That makes a difference when you talk about young athletes and how much, not pressure, but how much they may love the sport, how much they can follow in someone's footsteps, how much they can learn from those athletes. Because just like tonight at the, uh, the send-off event for the Canada Winter Games, which are coming up on Prince Edward Island beginning on the 18th of February, they're going to have some of those people there 
to help send off our athletes. So wish them good luck. Whether it be Jada Lee, of course, Jada made national news this past summer, the first female to pitch in the male division at the Canada Summer Games as a baseball player. And then I think Mark Nichols is going to be there. Of course, Mark Nichols, world junior champion, world champion, Olympic gold medalist, four-time Briar champion, young Nathan Young, who's uh, skipping a really solid up-and-coming junior and now advancing to the senior ranks as a curler. And I can't remember if there was another name that's going to be in attendance tonight, but those types of stories they make a difference to the young athletes okay let's check in on the twitter box some advice from mike on the starlink one fairly fundamental unplug it and plug it back in that's his starlink internet system uh so uh, this fellow or this person says unplug it for five minutes and plug it back in so it can do its required reboot and it's not gone everywhere because another listener uh, chimed in from the humber valley resort they say their starlink is working perfectly so mike it might be your operation but you know the standard all either arthur fonzarelli give it a knock or unplug it and plug it back in that's the best we can do so far unfortunately all right good job today big thanks to everyone who supports the program and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye